Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 122 of Let's Get Haunted. I'm excited to get fucking haunted today. Yeah, you guys, I... (sighs) Okay. It is the hottest fucking day of the year. As you might have heard in our previous intro to our previous episode, we're recording two episodes right now, and uh, it's really hot. I just settled in with this banana cream latte from a Keurig, which is actually surprisingly very good. Natalia was talking so highly about this latte that I have decided that I'm going to partake in it, even though I'm sure it's not vegan. I'm sure it has dairy in it. You You know know what? what? Let's shit our pants today. It's already miserable and hot. Might as well also be covered in shit. My expectations for anything that comes out of a Keurig are extremely low. So I feel like I was speaking so highly of it like, oh, I really assumed that this was just going to be the shittiest thing I've ever had. And it's actually tolerable. Love that. Love that for this banana latte. Yeah. If you guys are also drinking banana cream lattes that are from your free office stash, (laughs) um, we can all just like enjoy those together. Go ahead and go over to your local Keurig right now. (laughs) Do me a favor, grab a pod that says banana cream latte in what looks like it was probably expired four years ago. Pop that little baby in the Keurig. Hit brew. It's not ready. It never fucking is. (laughs) And eventually, once you have it, sit right back down here and let's just go for a little story time. And when we say go to your local Keurig, what we mean is go to that community Keurig that's in the middle of the alley that someone threw out and is now free real estate and create this banana latte. It's free real estate. Yeah. Well, Natalia, I'm very happy to be here with you today, even though it's a million fucking degrees, Mm -hmm. because we're getting haunted we're inching ever closer to haunted season, like mm-hmm. official haunted season. Spook season. And I've decided that I think September should also be spooky season. I think that why do we have to limit ourselves to just October? Yeah, I can remember when I was a kid being like, oh, my God, like Hallmark invented the holidays because I like heard some like teens say it before and be like, Ugh, they try to like, you know, Walgreens is now selling Christmas stuff and it's not even November. And now I'm like, fuck, yeah. Like, let's make the entire fucking year just prepping for holidays because as an adult, you have nothing to live for at all, you know? And so, like, it's nice to just, like, divide up your year of nothingness, which is essentially doing the same shit every single day, except sometimes it's cold and sometimes it's hot. And sometimes you have a banana latte. Right. And now if we can divide that into Christmas, spook season, um, and that's it. Just to <laughs> simplify our lives, yeah. I think we're, it's going to be really happy times. The other holidays are not even worth mentioning. Groundhog's Day. Mm, that one's kind of cool, though. Because, well, he does wear a hat. Yeah, that one I would take back. I would retract that. <laughs> uh, instead, let us look to Labor Day. I never understood what that was about. That one's stupid. I still have to work on Labor Day. Mo- a lot of people still have to work on Labor Day. Also, it's just dumb. Why are we celebrating that we all work? Like, yeah. no, let's celebrate George Washington's birthday because he had wooden teeth. Right. And oh, wait, I heard recently that was a lie and is problematic. Oh, really? Why? Apparently they were. He, it was actually the teeth of enslaved people. They were wooden. I no, don't, he like pulled teeth from his slaves to use. But why as were they dentures. wooden? They weren't. 
So then why is it problematic to say is wooden teeth? Because it wasn't wooden teeth and then it... it oh, it's erasing the... It's yeah. erasing that he pulled teeth from his slaves to put yeah. in his mouth. Wow, I just brought down the whole mood yeah, from banana latte. This is... But that's how my mind is but every day. I feel like that's a perfect segue into this story. I am so excited to bring you guys this story. It's like a really highly requested one. And boy, is it a fucking long ass bitch. I've been like telling Allie for weeks now, like, prepare yourself. Yes, this for is this true. Because this is going to be a long one. We don't want to separate it into two different ones because I feel like it needs to be together. But because of that, I am going to skip over some of the beautiful information that I that I learned. I'm going to keep a lot of my sort. Well, I'm going to keep all of my sources, even if I didn't use some of the material in the story, just because I want you guys to like click through this shit and see this because the fucking oh my God, it's there's so much information there and it's all haunted and it's all super, super interesting. Oh, this is like a well documented story. Yes. This is the story of um, some pioneers. Let's let me give you. Let me let me. I have go. <laughs> well, no. Before you before you go into that, let me shout out our donors for this episode. I'd like to give a big shout out to Peter Barker and Malik, Brianne M, Michael R, Chris Bree H, Rory L, Becca, Elena B, Lindsay L, Taylor S C, who says. Hi, ladies. Would you please give a shout out to my lifelong friend of 20 plus years for her birthday? Her name is Abby P. And she turns 29 on September 28th. What? Happy birthday, Abby P. Happy birthday, Abby P. And also would love to shout out our other donors for this episode. Haley A. Maria O. Anonymous, who says shout out to the Discord fam and left in a very generous donation. What? And that's it for this episode. But I also, my heart just kind of sank. Let me be very transparent here. I just saw a message in one of the donations that just made my like heart sink and made me feel very anxious. Apparently, I missed the LGH fantasy football draft and I didn't even know because I just have been so busy. Yeah, I've been really busy too. And then I saw a donation that was like, Hey, Nat um, and Allie, we like saved you a spot in this like fantasy football I know, thing. I fucked up. Whatever. Yeah. And then by the time I went to the Discord and I was like, hey, how do I do it? Can someone like send me the rules? Like, what is it? Because I don't know what it is. It was like it was done. But let me counter that with a different story here. OK, because I feel really sad. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to let you down. I've literally been working 80 hour work weeks and I just I didn't even make my own. Like I'm on a fantasy football league with some of my friends from college and I didn't even make that draft. Like I had them auto draft for me like I had a computer draft for me because I couldn't make their draft we've been super super busy this past week I have a lung infection it started as a sinus infection and went into my lungs now I'm on antibiotics I also have a broken toe need to get surgery for that but I refuse I feel like (laughs) the podiatrist is a scammer and I'm just gonna see if it's gonna heal itself even though the science says it won't also (laughs) um we're moving to Atlanta we put an offer in on this house they accepted the offer then we got put an offer for the fucking loan and then the loan they got the loan and then we had to move into a different house uh, into an Airbnb, which we are at. So we moved, packed up all our shit, moved. And so busy that we forgot, we missed our deadline to renegotiate our offer. Like we had put in an oh, offer no. and we're like, oh, okay, we're going to put this in to get them on the hook. And then fast forward like five or six days, we're going to be like, no, 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 no. We're going to actually offer you less than that, right? Because <laughs> that's what you do when you buy a house. Like you 
you try to like well it's normally the opposite you normally come in at the lowest and then they say no you're gonna have to like move up that was not our strategy we really wanted this house so we like offered them a little bit lower but they wouldn't they like wouldn't have accepted offer lower but then we paid to have like inspection and shit and then we were gonna come back and be like well after the inspection oh gotcha gotcha. oh i understand lower because we need to fix this shit right well we were so busy moving that we like missed the deadline to do that and so then we have like this whole conversation of like fuck like should we just like pay what we said we were gonna pay and just like eat it and you know what I mean so the point is is that there's been a lot going on for us and we're not just being dicks not joining the fantasy football team yeah I'm sorry guys yeah, that sorry. Act, that literally just made my heart drop because I I I'm a little worried now that people are annoyed with me and I don't like when that happens so I'm sorry guys for letting you down it was not intentional literally just working all the time well, if it makes you feel better, I let people down unintentionally all the time. <laughs> and this is not like a new occurrence for me. So this is just like, oh, I missed that. Damn. Right. I'm sorry, guys. I feel like I just need to apologize a bunch. But I don't know. There's not. I mean, if you on the off chance, you auto drafted a team for me. Yeah, I would love to play as an auto drafted team. Like I there's nothing in my heart that says that I don't want to play fantasy. I just literally have not had time to yeah. look at anything. We have like a lot of plans for our podcast and it's really hard to do it when you're still working like jobs and you're still yeah I, Alyssa works like I said like an 80 hour week I'm like a mom and fucking moving and trying to do all this other shit and like we haven't even unpacked our fucking office yet no. we filmed a vlog haven't been able to edit it because I still have to do other projects and like you know there's a lot going on so it's not like we're just like fuck you guys we feel really bad yeah if there's anyone that I like want to impress in my life it's the let's get haunted haunties and so to yeah it, it stings a little bit like fuck let down everyone else in my life fr- friends family who gives a fuck right right but let down a haunty like <laughs> absolutely not i know this is like like as i was reading these donations and i saw that comment i was like no do you fantasy football league from the discord do you perchance have a keurig because we would love to send you some of our free coffee yes. keurig pods um from over at the free keurig machine just put those in a ziploc and slap banana cream there. yeah latte, exactly shit your pants with us as a condolence yeah <laughs> <laughs> as a condolence i would like to thank gentry b pete m chad p crispy owen f gentry b garrett b gentry b hannah r brian g cap b jennifer p and hannah r and again jennifer p super generous donation thank you very very much we really really appreciate that and gentry b all of those notes you leave make us so happy you know we love you guys so much and um one day we hope when we can afford to quit our jobs and i can we can be here full time that would be great. Yeah, I um, agree. We'll do everything. We'll do everything. We'll be. We'll have a fantasy football league every month, right. even though that's not how it works. Right. Like in the off season where there is no football, we'll still have a fantasy football league. Wow. But maybe what we'll do is we'll draft ghosts. Oh, you know what we could do? This is really fucked up, but I just thought of it. What we could do is do a fantasy football league, but instead of football players, it's like historical people. And like if all of your people survive without getting like hung for being a witch or like dying from dysentery or whatever it is, then you win. Oh, so it would be like instead of you picking who you're drafting, everything would be auto drafted. And because if there are historical figures, we already know how they died. Well, we I mean, if I was like, uh, what's a historical name? If I was like William Feathersfoot. Would you know about that person? I would not. Right. Exactly. Oh, so we just pick random names and hope they're historical (laughs) figures. (laughs) 
<laughs> that sounds great. And I just re- realized I forgot to give a big special shout out to Michael R., who also gave a very generous donation this month. Michael R., Peter Barker, and Malik, and Anonymous. Um, all of you gave very generous donations this month, and I would just like to say thank you very much for continuing to put up with us and for being haunties. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate you all. Large or small, we appreciate your donations. There's no time to explain. You can look in the show yep. notes for information on how to donate to us. But we love you, and we're sorry. Today's episode is widely considered the most famous of its kind. Odds are you've probably heard of this topic in jest as a dark joke or an offhand way of referring to terrible planning. But rest assured, this grisly tale is not a hoax. We must never forget that the ease of our lives was born out of great sacrifice from our ancestors. Even now, as we listen to this podcast, take a moment to consider the technology that we benefit from. As we drive in our air-conditioned motorized vehicles, we have the luxury of automobiles that do not require grazing lands and rest. Even if we listen to LGH through headphones on foot, we have the luxury of privacy. We don't have to worry that everyone will be distrustful of us if they hear what we are listening to. In hopes that humankind may never repeat our mistakes, today we revisit the tragedies of the past. When we choose to illuminate this historic trail of misguided steps, we do not mock those who struggled before us, but rather pay our respect to the brave people who lost their lives to make ours easier. Got any Who's, fucking thing to say to that? Who the, Who is this about? Is this about like a war? Like the people who've lost their lives to make ours easier. So I'm thinking like, okay, is this going to be a story about like a battle like a historic battle is this a story about trees who've been chopped down and they come back to haunt us that it could be mm-hmm. who was to say wait okay wait who fought our battles make our lives easier is this an alien story the year is 1846 the new world was a poorly chosen name as this world wasn't new at all she was seasoned by growth and necessity ever expanding and collapsing under pressures administered in the politics of wilderness. Great lands were governed by herds of buffalo, whom in their search for abundance softened stubborn earth beneath their hooves, and mankind, studious but feral in nature, thought only of himself when he preyed upon the lonely calf. It was but a single grain of sand in the hourglass of human history, but within that singular piece lay the key that would unlock the whole. still don't know what this is about, Natalia. Can we just take a moment to just know that I wrote that and it was really good? Yes. The <laughs> thing that is stuck in my head is the softening the hardened earth with hooves. Yeah. So good job with that imagery because it's, it's, it's ringing in my head. The politics of wilderness. In the 1840s and 1850s, there was a great migration west taking place in the United States. We briefly spoke of the social and political changes which motivated Americans to move west. But to refresh our memories, after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the U.S. opened 828,000 square miles of land for settlers. Then, in the 1820s, the Mexican government allowed speculators known as impresarios into what is now present-day Texas to acquire land as long as they brought in settlers to make the area profitable. 
According to one of my sources, a contract between the Mexican government and an empresario stipulated that, quote, the families which are to compose this colony, besides being industrious, must be Catholics and of good morals, end quote. And lastly, also there was like rumors of gold and prosperous land. These rumors were known to all out east. There seemed to be no shortage of people who wanted to move out west. There was only one problem. How would they get there? Do you know what this photo is, Allie? Is that the Oregon Trail? That is the Oregon Trail. You're right. Uh, Yes. I'm looking at a red line that goes all the way across from... It looks like Illinois. Mm-hmm. And then in there, it kind of branches off. So like, it looks like some people went up to Washington. Other people went kind of down to California. And there are a couple different branches that branch off of this trail. Yeah. So then the next photo is a photo of the Oregon Trail. And then you can see at the end, there's a bunch of different trails who go off of the Oregon Trail. So it's kind of like a tree, like the California Trail and the Mormon Trail. That That is like crazy and wild to just think about being one of the first people to go down one of those pathways. Like somebody had to fucking blaze that trail. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because... Because the Oregon Trail was actually made by fur traders and trappers from around 1811 to 1840-ish. But at that time, it was really only passable on foot or horseback. So these people who left on what is now known as Pioneer Trails, they were taking covered wagons like we've seen in the photos. Often these wagons were uh, attached to a team of oxen who were pulling them. And then the settlers would go on this journey across uh, west and they usually had in their wagons with them um, like a stove, supplies, and at night they would form a circle with all of the other wagons in the wagon train because they had to have a lot with them because there were so many dangers that they would encounter that they believed traveling in groups like really helped them get through because if you're like wagon axle broke or something like that, you could borrow supplies from someone else or hitch a ride with someone to the nearest place to get something to fix your stuff, right? Or the patriarch of the family died, then the women and children would need to go ride in someone else else's wagon to the nearest settlement or whatever or to make their way out west some other way so traveling in groups really helped these people get west yeah that makes sense and and like what if you're trying to hunt I just remember playing the Oregon Trail as a child right and like part of it is you go out and you hunt and you're like trying to hunt ducks or deer buffalo like if you got a buffalo you were like doing really well for yourself but sometimes you go out to hunt in the game the Oregon Trail and there's just no wildlife and you can't fucking shoot anything Okay, well, if you're in a big group, maybe somebody has better luck than you or somebody like you're able to carry more meat as well. Because I right. remember another thing in the Oregon Trail is sometimes you shoot a buffalo, you're trying to carry all that meat, but then it weighs down your wagon or like it starts going bad. So yeah, sounds like I agree. And it's not hard for me to imagine that it would be easier to travel in a large group. Yeah, I actually haven't played the Oregon Trail, but when you're researching the Oregon Trail, obviously it comes up a lot. And according to the sources that I was reading, it's actually a pretty accurate representation of what it was like to be a pioneer on one of these routes. Like I said, the Oregon Trail starts out and it's like the most well-worn of these trails. And then as time goes on, and people start going, you know, to California and people start going south and they there all these other little offshoots are made off of this main trail. But the Oregon Trail is like the tried and true trail. There's tons of settlements off of it. It's the safest route because it is so old and so known. 
the OG trail that like probably so many people have traveled it that like word gets back like oh this is the best one like yeah so it's what's the cr- easiest to see what's crazy is when I was researching this I was so fascinated by this pioneer history which we'll get into but um I was looking up and you can still see these wagon ruts like you can oh, really? still see these trails yes they're, they're still worn into the side of the road a lot of times along route 66 because oh, after wow. um these ways were so well worn they just turned them into route 66 and so next to the road you can often see like this is the old Oregon trail and it's yeah just like a pair of old wagon ruts just going along that's crazy that I mean that's really fucking dope like it's so cool that it's like literally like a fossilized track and in some of the places where they were going over granite or stone the wagon ruts are like imprinted into the the stone the rock oh wow so the eastern part of the trail is super heavily traveled and it's really well maintained but the western part of the trail starts seeing less and less foot traffic as these wagon trains splinter off to their respective locations that meant that the beginning of the trip was a lot easier than the end of the trip and settlers going to California would have the most difficult part of their journey at the very end of their trip which was crossing the Sierra Nevada mountain range this mountain range you would think because it's like for some reason when I was living in Oklahoma I just assumed that like the big mountains and snow were like all the Rockies, right? Like in Colorado, I assumed that these like mountains, quote unquote, that they had in California were going to be like just pussy ass bitch (laughs) mountains, right? Because it's, you think of California and you think of like sunshine, you think of Nevada and you think of like, oh, like it's the old West, like a painting of a cowboy in like the heat, you know what I mean? So like I, in my like very um, ignorant mind, I for some reason did not expect these mountains to be shit. But then when I got out to California and I actually went to them, you guys, they're real fucking mountains. It's not like a mountain that's like, this is a mountain for California. No, this is like a mountain on par with other mountains. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Big giant mountain range that like people hike through and stuff. I was just reading something the other, the other day where someone got murdered um, hiking that the Pacific Trail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it goes all the way up. Yeah, it's very impressive. I remember one time I went to visit Kansas when I was in high school because my mom had uh, like a relative living out there. And the one thing about like the Midwest, is that technically Kansas Midwest? There's like you look out and there's just nothing. And I never realized how nice having big mountains is until I was in an area with nothing. Right. Because you look out and it's like it's flat. There's no ocean. There's no mountains. Like far as the eye can see just land and it gave me like vertigo and claustrophobia all at once even though it's a giant open space why would I feel claustrophobic I just like couldn't gauge where anything was right like there's no landmarks yes and that's how the majority of the United States was it was like these big prairie fields and we're not going to get off on that tangent talking about the Dust Bowl but we could because the Dust Bowl was a result of this great migration west and uh, yeah, so I'm, and I'm biting my tongue because I'd love to talk more about the Dust Bowl. And if you guys would like to hear more about it, you can go back to Natalia's episode on the Manson family part one. Typically, these waxen ups uh, waxens. I meant a wagon with oxen. which should be called a waxen. It should be. Yeah, that's way easier than saying a covered wagon pulled by a team of oxen. A waxen. 
Yeah, well, a waxen, waxen's a real word, too. Like, her waxen hair. Oh, yeah. Which, like, just sounds like an insult, but I guess it's not. Right. I'd be like, my hair looks stringy and waxy. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. It just melts as you touch it. <laughs> yeah. So a typical wagon from this time period could hold up to 2,500 pounds, and they were pulled by these teams of as many as six oxen. Not all of them were pulled by six oxen, but they could be. The oxen that are pulling these wagons especially if they're heavy they need grass and water obviously to stay alive and they need rest to refuel themselves because they're animals so you don't want your oxen to get sick and die that's like having your engine fall out of your car in the middle of the desert like you don't want that to happen yeah that'd be bad yeah so the immigrants is which is what they called the pioneers who were going out west they had to plan this trip west during the late spring so that there would be enough grass available for their animals but it wouldn't be so cold that it ends up being winter and they have to like sit through this winter. This was especially dangerous for people who were going on the California Trail because they did not want to have to pass the Sierra Nevada mountains during winter because it's a fucking mountain. It snows a ton there. It's actually some of the towns up in the Sierra Nevada mountain range have some of the like highest snowfall records in the country. So that meant that they would try to lighten the load for their animals so that the animals would last a long time. And they did that by walking next to the wagon if they could and these pioneers would sometimes walk like 15 to 20 miles a day like I said they wanted to get where they were going they didn't have a whole lot of time the less time you were spent on the trail the better odds you had of making it out of this thing so that meant that there was a sweet spot for the departure and that was about mid slash late April no later and no earlier so we're going to talk about this Oregon Trail for a second because I think as a society I, well, I know me personally, I'm just so far removed from these survival instincts that like we forget what life was like before luxuries, like having your fucking flower ground, you know, like they had to buy supplies for this trip. And the author of this amazing book called The Indifferent Stars Above went into a bunch of detail about like how they had all these different types of rice they could buy. They had different types of grains they could buy. And it came down to like, do I want my shit to be heavier but easier or do I want it to be lighter but have to work? work harder and grind it myself along the road wow they didn't obviously didn't have running water or roads grocery stores like they're fucking trails like a dirt thing that goes somewhere and in my personal opinion these pioneers who were setting out to travel months on a dusty dirt path had to be like a little unhinged right right they wanted a better life and essentially everyone who was going was trying to like level up in their lives and they were taking this huge gamble this huge risk of leaving their communities of leaving leaving everything that they know and going out on this unknown place where there was tons of danger because the route of the Oregon, California and Mormon pioneer trails were known as the nation's longest graveyard. One out of 10 immigrants who began the trail did not survive. That meant that sometime there was one in 10 pioneers dying per trip. And since the trail was 2000 miles long, there was an average of 10 to 15 deaths per mile. So they would bury some of these people people along just the side of the road or they would have these pioneer cemeteries where someone died you you know it's like a two-day walk to the next cemetery if you didn't know the person very well like you know they were just sitting by the side of the road and asked if they could trek along because the rest of their family died of consumption maybe you would put them in the back of their wagon and they would like die with you right and then you would plant them on the side of the road because you don't know them that well but if it was like your mom or your sister or someone you knew very well you would wait to get to one of these pioneer near cemeteries 
and perhaps have like a funeral for them. The Oregon Trail does sound like a very accurate game then because in the game, if somebody in your party dies, you bury them on the side of the road and then you like write something on a headstone for them. And then the next time you're playing the game, when you go through, like you see that you can see the headstones. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And like it'll be like your character stopped and sees a headstone on the side of the road. The headstone says and then it's whatever you wrote (gasps) the last time you played the game. So like eventually you'll just have tons and tons of headstones. Oh my God. The Oregon Trail is like a euphemism for reincarnation because we're all just on this trail and we see our ancestors who went before oh, us fuck. and were reborn and no, we do it again. No, don't freak me out right now. <laughs> the main causes of death along the trail were disease, gunshot wounds, wagon or animal related accidents, drowning, weather like tornadoes, floods, etc., and attacks from natives. However, I will point out that most of the sources made a very valiant effort to point out that the settlers were a lot more afraid of attack by natives than actual native attacks occurred. They did occur, but it was way more rare for that to happen than to die from like disease or accidentally shooting yourself. Right. Yeah, I don't think the game Oregon Trail even had the option for you to be attacked by people. Oh, wow. I think it was all, yeah, it was just like disease and injury. One of the sources illustrated this point by noting that there was, quote, one body on average buried every 80 yards, end quote. So there's literally 30,000 corpses alongside the Oregon Trail. And then I got on this tangent during research, but it was interesting. Did you know that there are tons of unmarked pioneer graves that are not known to the public all over the West, um, along these trails in national parks? People are still finding them today. So you could just be in a national park surrounded by corpses or stumble upon one of these shallow graves and not know it. Parks are already super haunted. Woods are haunted. So how do they find these graves? Is it because they're like they'll be just like walking around and all of a sudden they stumble over some like rough hewn footstone that says here lies Jebediah Buckhauser? No, no, because then we like I mean that could happen, but that's you would know that there was someone there because there's a gravestone there. So a lot of those have been found and we know where they are, but there's like ranchers who own property that the Oregon Trail was next to or the Oregon Trail goes through now that's like their property and they'll find these historic campgrounds where there's like old plates and things like that and old burial mounds with people in them, like corpses. And it's really controversial of like whether or not they're supposed to tell the National Park Service about it because in their minds, they're kind of like, you know, these people died here on this resting spot. One guy was talking about how he found one on the top of this hill overlooking this canyon under this beautiful tree. And like he was like, clearly someone took the time to come out here a few miles away from the wagon train and bury someone here overlooking this beautiful area where they knew they would be unlikely to be hit by like grave robbers who come and like take their shit, you know, from the shallow graves. So like, I'm not going to disturb this place and just let them rest in peace. Oh, that's awesome. Because also the national parks try to keep people away from all of this stuff because they don't want to exhume the bodies either. It's just like too Mm. much work. Wow. Well, that's really, that's nice to know that there are still people out there who like will find remains of of our fallen ancestors and be like you know what we don't need to dig up everybody 
Well, there's some people, though, that think it's really cool, and they have, like, these cadaver dogs, and the cadaver dogs can sniff out remains that are up to 350 years old, and they don't give a fuck. They, like, go around in, like, all of their Columbia hiking and Patagonia gear. It's, like, their passion is, like, going and finding these pioneer graves that are unmarked, right? So one of them was talking about how you can tell on the prairie where there's someone buried because the ground is so hard that flowers can't grow. But there's places where lilies spring out and that's usually where there's bodies buried because the ground has been made like soft by digging to put a corpse there. So like they'll look for lilies. That is so interesting. That makes sense then why the lily is considered the funeral flower. Yeah. I had a Polish roommate and one time a guy um, was trying to like, I don't know, woo her, I guess. I don't remember the situation. This was so long ago, but he gave her lilies and she was like in... Polish culture I guess and somebody can confirm because obviously if there's a Polish listener they'll know better than me but she told me that because lilies are considered the funeral flower that receiving lilies outside of a funeral is like really like offensive and like bad luck so when he gave her these lilies she was like does anyone else in the house want them like I can't I like can't accept continue to see that guy probably not I don't know we were like 20 so probably I mean (laughs) you, you know you see a guy for like a day and then you forget Another tangent, the last one. Okay, so one of the sources was talking about up until we started having the abilities to study these grave sites as like a point for like, no, we should exhume the bodies. People thought that these pioneers were just like these brutal, inhuman people because we would find bodies of late term pregnant women and infants right off of the trail. And someone would be like, why the fuck would you have a pregnant person or an infant go on this super dangerous trail? And then they found that one of the bodies of a woman who had given birth several times was buried next to the trail and she had this weird porous section of her pelvis that looked like bone matter that was trying to fuse back together from a break and historians realized that it was actually this super old practice of sawing through the pubic bone to get a baby out and if a woman had recently had this procedure like this woman had just had it was extremely difficult to recover from like you couldn't walk for weeks afterwards oh my god so she's on this fucking trail walking 20 miles a day and she died so historians were like obviously these pioneers didn't give a fuck about women and children like we do today but then as we started uncovering more sites we did find places like these unmarked pioneer graveyards overlooking a hill that are off the beaten path and they're buried in places that would have taken time and effort to get to and with like sentimental things in their graves when they're buried in ritualistic ways and so then historians were able to create create a different picture of pioneers, but we were unable to know that they even mourned their dead until we started finding more of these grave sites. Because what would happen is if you just met some random dude that was like looking for gold and he was just like a crazy single dude, like along the trail, like, I'm going to go out there and get me some gold. You know, California, uh, where I'll start a republic. You would just be like, yeah, that guy's going to die soon. And when he does, we're not going to fucking waste time with this guy. Right. You know, that's just a reminder of what will happen to us if we don't get where we're going. Right. Yeah. So here's some pictures of some of these pioneer graves. You can see like literally in oh, just wow. the middle of the prairie. Yeah. So Natalia is showing me photos. It looks like, yeah, the middle of a prairie or desert. So the first one, it looks like somebody found it. And then later they put up these like, it's like almost like a wooden fence. Yeah. yeah so that people can't enter and there's a placard. Then the one underneath it is, are those shells? What are those? Oh, it's just a pile of rocks. So like someone was buried there and then their people just like put rocks on them. Oh yeah. Now I'm seeing pictures of wagon rides 
cuts. If you, Wow, that's crazy. So people were literally thousands and thousands of pioneers were just going over the exact same location yeah. like, over, over and over again to form those ruts that are still there even today. And if you guys want to see these photos, go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. So people were so scared uh, on this trail. Like I said, they traveled in these groups and they organized these wagon trains to help defend themselves on the trail. They also bought guns and treatments for ailments that essentially did nothing like castor oil to treat diarrhea, which actually causes diarrhea. Whoa, of course. They didn't know about guns because... So not all of them. Some of them were like seasoned farmers or pioneers themselves who like knew about things. But some of them were like city folk Mm -hmm. who were just going out for a a different life and they didn't know how to use guns. So they would accidentally shoot themselves or their guns would be like so poorly made because they were made by these like roadside stands. It's like buy a gun here, you know, and it would just like explode in their hands and kill them. Every time you use that old pioneer voice, (laughs) I'm just picturing you, but like with a white beard and like (laughs) just standing on the side of a road holding a golden nugget and a gun like yes come here let trade me your children for a gun it is really exciting to know to like see if that would work people ran businesses like that person you're talking about which is me in another dimension (laughs) that profited off of the pioneers like general stores along the trail some of the natives would sell goods and exchange livestock with the pioneers we have diary accounts of some of these immigrants talking about how they bought like beautiful beaded moccasins and they were able to play with some of the natives like children and they had fun with them and made music and stuff some of these people on this trail were hired help that were helping to drive the oxen or were there to like help build shit for the family or they were trail guides that were selling their services. People also published and sold paper guides to the trail as well. There's this really famous dude named Lansford Hastings who wrote this pamphlet book thing called The Immigrant's Guide to the Oregon Trail or some shit like that. We'll talk about him later. There was a huge industry around these pioneer immigrant trails. So you have this interesting ecosystem of inexperienced pioneers led by more experienced pioneers, some of which were for hire, and people selling supplies to those pioneers, the migrant trails were like their own little worlds. Right. Own little ecosystem and economy. Yes. In April of 1846, a 62-year-old farmer named George Donner and his 44-year-old wife, Tamsin Donner, and their five daughters, which were ranging from three years old to 14 years old, departed Springfield, Illinois. They were joined by George Donner's brother, who was 56 years old, Jacob Donner, and his family, wife, 45-year-old Elizabeth, and their seven children, which were ranging from 1 to 14 years old. They also had with them six hired Teamsters, which were ranging from 16 years old to 30 years old, that drove the oxen that were pulling their wagons. By the way, there's a ton of names in this story, so in an interest of saving time, I'm not going to name everyone in the party unless they do something haunted. Okay, perfect. Love that. So basically, to wrap that up, the Donners was four adults, 12 children, and six hired Teamsters. This is a photo of George Donner. He looks to me like Abraham Lincoln. Right? Yeah. So Natalia is showing me two photos of this man. In the first one, it is a square photo. Second one, it's an oval photo. They're both black and white. He is wearing what looks to be the same or a similar outfit in both. It's like very formal black looking um like suit jacket with a white collared shirt with like a fun little bow tie or ascot whatever I don't know what it's called it's not really a bow tie but it's like it's just like the pioneer scarf tied around your neck yeah (laughs) and then he's got his hair is like kind of parted on the side it's very forward thinking really and the first one he has no beard second one he has a beard 
His face is kind of long. He's a white guy with big ears. It's Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it just looks like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Like, if you just... I think Abraham Lincoln was from Illinois, too. So yes. like Springfield, in fact, I yeah, think. Yeah, maybe all of these people were just looked like each other because they were related to each other. It could be. Could be. Apparently, George Donner had hired the Teamsters who were driving the Oxen team himself with an ad that said, quote, Westward Ho! Who wants to go to California without costing them anything? As many as eight young men of good character who can drive an ox team will be accommodated. Come, boys, you can have as much land as you want without costing you anything. End quote. George Donner. Yeah, I mean, who can resist that ad? It does seem a little bit like a predator that's trying (laughs) to get little boys to come hang out with him, but... I, you know what? I take that back. I don't know this man yet. I, I vaguely know the story of the Donner Party, but I'm actually very excited to hear like you flesh this out because yeah. I re- all I know is is a very little that I won't say in case someone has never heard the story, but I don't really don't know any of these details. Uh, yeah, guys, I did the heavy lifting for you guys. I listened to a bunch of podcasts that covered this. I read a bunch of like sources. I read first person sources. Uh, I read primary sources. I read secondary sources. I read tertiary sources. I read well, the one that comes after that. And I have found a lot of information that I have not heard anyone else pick up on. Oh, nice. Um, specifically paranormal things <gasps> and conspiracy like situations. So if you know the story, you should listen to it again because I'm going to cover some stuff you guys probably haven't heard. And if you have, then at the end of this, you can be like, fuck that. I just listened to that and I didn't need to. And then you can go start a colony of yourself somewhere else where there's no stories. Yeah. Part of this group of the Donner group included the Reed family, which included this guy named James Reed. He was like the patriarch. He was 45. His wife was Margaret. She was 32. They had five kids ranging from age three to 13. And the Reeds were much better off than the Donners. Reed was a um, like a businessman. He had like a bunch of shit going on. And so they had like more hired help and they had like a bigger wagon, some people call it the palace wagon they had three teamster men that were driving their oxen with a handyman and two servants and a cook and all of the hired help were in their mid-20s so the reeds had three adults five children and six hired hands Weirdly enough, the main character of the story of the Donner family is actually James Reed, even though Donner is the name that's attached to the story. Oh, interesting. Like I said, James Reed was the successful businessman entrepreneur. And for whatever reason, people thought he was like a bit of a dick. They said that he was pretentious and ostentatious. He claims that he was born in Ireland and he said that he was of like noble Polish lineage. But some people who have tried to find these records say that they were scrubbed or they were unable to trace that back. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just means they couldn't verify that. Right. After his dad died, his mother and him moved to the U.S. and he worked in Virginia and then he moved to Illinois to mine and he ran several businesses there. He even fought alongside Abraham Lincoln in the Black Hawk War. A couple years later, he meets this widow who has a daughter and he marries her and raises the child as his own and then they have more children together. So he's kind of a hustler, right? Like he's immigrated before from a different country. He sought out gambling with his future before with the mining. He's literally fought in a war with a man who will become one of the most influential presidents of our country. Like, he's a survivor, right? Right. Whereas the 
Donner guy was like a farmer and he was more peaceful. Reed was like this ambitious manic with adult ADHD. Got it. This wagon they talk about is controversial. Some are like, no, it didn't exist. Others are like, there's literally proof. We have proof that it existed. We found like wagon tracks of this specific thing. It was called the palace wagon. According to one legend, in addition to two supply wagons, Reed also had this comfortable wagon for his family, which has since become somewhat of a highly debated legend within this story. According to some, the Reed's wagon was gigantic and it slowed the party down. Others say this is just unfounded and that was a detail that was added by the press to add more drama to this story. James Reed's stepdaughter, 45 years later after their trip, said, quote, our wagons or the Reed wagons as they were called were all made to order and I can say without fear of contradiction that nothing like our family wagon ever started across the plains. It was what might be called a two-story wagon or pioneer palace car attached to a regular immigrant train. My mother, though a young woman, was not strong and had been in delicate health for many years. Yet when sorrows and dangers came upon her, she was the bravest of brave. Grandma Keys, who was 75 years of age, was an invalid confined to her bed. So the car in which she rode was planned to give comfort. The entrance was on the side like that of an old-fashioned stagecoach, and one stepped into a small room, as it were, in the center of the wagon. At the right and left were spring seats with comfortable high backs, where one could sit as the seats of a Concorde coach. In the little room was placed a tiny sheet iron stove whose pipe running through the top of the wagon was prevented by a circle of tin from setting fire to the canvas cover. A board about a foot wide extended over the wheels on either side the full length of the wagon, thus forming a foundation for a large and roomy second story in which were placed our beds. Under the spring seats were compartments in which were stored many articles useful for the journey. We had two wagons loaded with provisions. Certainly no family ever started across the plains with more provisions or a better outfit for the journey. The family wagon was drawn by four yoke of oxen, large Durham steers at the wheel. The other wagons were drawn by three yoke each. We had saddle horses and cows and last but not least, my pony, end quote. That's cute. Yeah. So she must have been young at the time. This is his stepdaughter who said this 45 years later. So she was super, super young at the time. The most of this party was children. There was more children than there were adults on this party. If you count in the hired Teamsters as like part of the party, it was about half children a little more than half children. But if you take out the hired Teamsters, it was like mainly all kids because you have like the mom and the dad and then like five kids and then seven kids and then nine kids. Oh, shit. I had no idea. Between the Donners and the Reeds, each man had three covered wagons. There was 21 adults and 17 children, plus a bunch of other NPCs that made up almost 90 people and 23 wagons. Here's a picture of James and Margaret Reed. Wait, 90 people and 23 wagons were on this trip? Yeah. So they were like the part of, you know how they would have these giant wagon trains that would go across? This was like a 500 wagon train going. So the trail was like, like... If the person, if one person had set out in the beginning of April and another person had set out at the end of April, they were still like 
a part of this wagon train that was going. Okay. Right. But then like within the train, there were smaller groups of like people who stayed together um, because depending on how you traveled, you might pass someone else. Like your train might be going faster than someone else's. And there's a lot of instances of some of the people being like, oh yeah, we overtook the, 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 Weatherfoot party and like yeah. oh the the Springfield party like passed us while we were stuck in the mud like you know oh interesting so within their party there was a bunch of other people for some reason we only like remember the Donners the other family that was here was the Breen family there was Patrick Breen who was 51 his wife Margaret who went by Peggy who was 40 they had seven kids uh, they were ranging from one to f- 13 years, or no, 14 years old. According to one source from DonnerPartyDiary.com, which is really cool, it c- includes these primary sources of like the diaries that people kept on this trip. Quote, unlike the Reeds, the Breen family crossed the plains without fanfare or fame. Patrick Breen's diary reflects the simple, honest approach to life. The newspapers that first published the diary didn't even name the author, which was in contrast to the newspaper accounts of the Reeds, end quote. So they're basically saying like the Reeds were like this big flashy family who have this giant custom made wagon to bring their fucking dying grandmother with them. So she's comfortable. It had two stories. They had all these provisions, all this stuff with them. James Reed, you know, he had like fought alongside Abraham Lincoln. So I'm sure that like gives you some clout. And he is like the main person of this story where the Donners are a little bit more humble, have less stuff, and the Breens are even more humble than them. Let me show you pictures of Margaret Breen and her husband. So Margaret, this is a another black and white photo. All these photos look very haunted, but that's just the nature of old photos. She's sitting there with like one of her hands almost looks like... It's okay. You can say she's a witch. That's all right. Well, it looks... <laughs> dis- I don't... Not really sure. It looks like she has talons, but I think it's just the way that the photo was taken. But yeah, she has like one... One hand is like awkwardly facing up and then the other one's facing down and then she just has like a very like austere look on her face and her hair is parted down the middle in a tight bun. Yeah. Yeah. And then below that is the patriarch who's also another Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Literally all these people look like Abraham Lincoln. Might as well just be like a bunch of Abraham Lincolns <laughs> yeah. went on a trail. William Eddy was a carriage maker from Belleville, Illinois. And with him was his wife, Eleanor, who was 25. And they had two children um, and they only had one wagon. Like so many other immigrants, the Donner Reed parties were made up of several different families, including some of the ones that I told you about. And they were headed out west to California along the Oregon Trail. But the destination of their first leg was in Independence, Missouri, that's where the Oregon Trail begins. So their starting point of Springfield, Illinois, to the first leg of the trip in Independence, Missouri, is already 250 miles. By the time the Donner Reed Party arrives in Independence, they're near the end of this 500 wagon train of people who have already gone out. But you're, you remember, you're not supposed to leave past mid-April for the trail. Well, they left May 12th, which oh. is almost a month after the beginning of the wagon train. So why'd they do that? I'm glad you asked. We're not really sure why they decided to leave so much later than those at the beginning of the wagon train, but they did. However, the Donner Reed party isn't too worried. They think that they're part of this large group and they're at the end of this long caravan that's full of other families on the same path. So they don't feel like they're in danger because they're part of the herd, right? They're like, oh, so I'm the last person on this train. I'm still part of the train, right? Right, like, right. 
Who cares? Yeah. According to one source, they were the last pioneer train in 1846, the entire year. Oh, shit. And one immigrant wrote, quote, I am beginning to feel alarmed at the tardiness of our movements and fearful that the winter will find us in the snowy mountains of California. End quote. Within a week of leaving Independence, the Reeds and the Donners had joined a group of 50 wagons that was led by this guy, William H. Russell. So I think they're going to be okay, right? Like they were like, that's fine. We'll go out. And you know what? They, they did. They joined this group of 50 wagons. But then they have this first delay. May 27th, 1846, they have to cross the Big Blue River, which is a river you cross in the Oregon Trail video game. And this stops their the train in what is modern day Kansas right now. Immigrants, they, they have a few choices when they're going to cross a river. They can either untie all of their oxen and like swim them across and then cock their wagon or like seal it so it becomes a raft and float it across. This is pretty sketch. And that's how a lot of people drown because the they get like swept away in the river with all of their shit or their oxen like you know get killed or whatever it just is not that great so instead they have to build a raft to carry their wagon across and then here is a photo of what one of these rafts that would carry the wagon across a river looks like so i'm looking at uh what what looks to me like tom sawyer floating down the mississippi river with huck finn just like um a bunch of trees lashed together Mm -hmm. with sides This is the thing that annoys me so much about this story because it's 1846. People have been fucking traveling this river for a long time. Has no, like if they're all so ambitious, right? Like they're willing to risk their lives to go get a better life in wherever the fuck dangerous place it is. Why doesn't one of them just camp by that river, become a fucking ferryman, make a raft ferry that goes across the river, or better yet, build a fucking bridge and charge people to take it, right? Well, in the game, the Oregon Trail, you can pay to take a ferry. So sometimes that's available, but like in the sources I was reading was like, oh, if it's not available. And I was like, what do you mean it's not available? Like they got the ferry to the other side and they just like disassembled it and we're like, we're taking this with us. What? I know that's true. It's just like such a weird old time. Maybe like if the guy who runs the ferry just felt like he got sick or like. He wanted to go home for dinner that day. Then like the people that come to that side of the river, they just don't take the ferry. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it was expensive, at least in the Oregon Trail game, it was expensive. So it would be like, you've reached the river. Would you like to try to go through the river with your wagon? Would you like to try to build a raft and float across? Or would you like to pay the ferryman? And what did you choose? Well, sometimes you don't have enough money to pay the ferryman. Like sometimes, because sometimes you have to trade along the trail to like get supplies. How does it decide? whether or not you survive the crossing it's just, it's random. just random yeah. yeah so like sometimes it'll be like you floated across but then like you've drowned or something you know or like you're floating across and your wagon tipped over or you tried to make it across in a shallow area but it was actually deeper than you thought and your wagon floated away and now you have no supplies but the ferry, you would always make it across 100% of the time, but it was super expensive. Well, that's what I mean. Someone That would be me. I would be yeah. there with my white beard and my nugget of gold like, you would like to take Nat's ferry. Sh- shooting a gun in the air. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ah, ha, ha, ha. yeah. Two days after this river crossing, because it takes a few days to figure this shit out, Mrs. Reed's mother, the grandmother, Sarah Keys, dies of whatever. They say old age, but I think she had consumption. Can't prove it. I just feel like everyone has consumption right and they bury her under a tree near alcove spring which they're leaving and some say that she was like sick the whole time but i feel like everyone's probably a little sick the whole time back then right like i'm a little sick right now and it's like right of the modern times 
This is true. You got to get it done. Then May 31st, all of the wagons have finally been ferried across the river. And at some point during this delay at this river, a family known as the Murphy family joins the wagon train, consisting of Lavinia Jackson Murphy, who is 50, and she is the widow of Jeremiah Burns Murphy of North Carolina. And she was traveling with her seven children. Five of them were young, Landrum, 15, Mary, 13, Lemuel, 12, William, 11, Simon, 10. But the two eldest were married with children of their own. Sarah was 23 and her husband, William Foster, was 28. And they had a son named George, who was four. And then also Harriet, who was 21, and her husband, William Pike, who was 25. They had two kids, Naomi, who was three, and Catherine, who was one. And the Murphys had two wagons. So another fucking family joins them. One month after their start on this trail, it's June 16th, and the company has traveled 450 miles. They only have 200 miles to go before the next big resting spot, which is Fort Laramie. And Tamsin Donner, who's George Donner's wife, writes to a friend in Springfield, quote, Indeed, if I do not experience something far worse than I have yet done, I shall say the trouble is in all getting started, end quote. So she, let me translate that for you. (laughs) She was saying like, oh yeah, the hardest part of the trip is just like getting started. Like we've run into, we've had to do this thing. Um, Someone's grandma died. Uh, Like we had to build a ferry across a river. But like now we're going. Right, right. Now we're finally, we're getting, we're getting gone. But by June 18th, 1846, the Russell train was now in need of a new guide because Russell had relinquished his position as captain of the wagon train because him and this other important guy who was a journalist named Edwin Bryant and others in their wagon train decided that they were going to go to Fort Laramie to switch mules because their mules were tired. So now they need a new leader. Everyone is like, oh, okay, like who should the leader be? And they pick this guy named Lilburn W. Boggs, who was a former governor of Missouri. That is dope. Right? William, Wilburn Boggs? Lilburn W. Boggs. That is incredible. That's literally the only reason that I decided to keep that guy's name in there is because I was like, he's not really important, but I feel like they should know that this guy was named this and he existed and he was the governor of Missouri. That's how I felt last episode about the guy that buried his arm. I was like, this isn't really related, (laughs) but like it's... Right. Needs to be said. I, I feel like it's the side missions that make the journey feel fun, right? Wow. Somebody put that on a t shirt. <laughs> The train finally gets to Fort Laramie and James Reed goes into Fort Laramie. It's this big fort, right? You have like tons of cattle and mules and supplies and stuff and people are training things out. And while he's there, you know, they're like making merry. People are like being able to shower and eat and just chill for a little bit. He runs into an old soldier buddy who is now like a mountaineer. This man is named James Kleiman. And James Kleiman is just looks like he's returned from the fucking other side of the earth. He's <laughs> covered in scratches and dirt and blood. He looks like he's just been buried alive. And James Reed is like, oh, hey, like, why? <laughs> yeah, what's, why did you not w- take t- the time to wash off the blood before coming to this area? Well, he says that he had just come by horse from California with a man named Lansford Hastings along a new shortcut. And James Reed is like, what? 
I'm going to California. What? And you took a shortcut? What is this? And Climate is like, no, fuck this shortcut. I just took this shortcut with this guy. Do not take it. Take the regular Oregon Trail. Like, take the regular route. You do not want to go the direction that I just went. And James Reed is like, but did you say it was shorter? Yeah. And he's like, do not do it. Like, please, just don't do it. We had to, like, blaze our own trail. Like, legit, you know, there's not a trail there. Like, we're blazing it ourselves. Hastings had never taken that trail, even though it was called his his shortcut. It's called the Hastings Cutoff. He had to go, like, check it out. So let, let me back up. Let me explain this. This guy, Lansford Hastings, he is, like, sort of well-known in the area because he is the guy that wrote the Immigrant's Guide to... Oh. California or whatever the fuck it's called, right? So he's kind of famous. Like, they've all read his book. They know who he is. So he is a man that they all trust, right? There's one sentence in his book where he talks about, like, oh, the best route to get to California is, like, it's super vague. Like, if one goes, I I, I don't even remember what it was because it's, like, literally not important. But he said something like, if one goes south, uh, south towards the and then one goes north you know like it's just so vague there's no information about it but Hastings is a really ambitious dude and he's like if I could just blaze this trail like uh, make a shortcut of my own there would be a ton of opportunity for me because he's already trying to become the next like president of California essentially he has written that book the immigrant's guide to the Oregon Trail or whatever the fuck because he is thinking like if I can just get enough like white settlers to go out to to Mexico we'll just overtake it because there will be so many of us there that people who already live there will be like okay like I guess it's theirs now you know right right So he is like trying to encourage people to go out there. And one of the things that people are afraid of when they're going out to California is the Sierra Nevada mountain range because it like poses this huge risk at the end of your journey and it makes it a lot more dangerous. And he's like, but you know what? Like I know a shortcut where you get there faster and it's easier. And uh, I know you guys have all heard the scary stories of being attacked by natives. Well, natives in the area are like very hostile and like the Mexicans too are very hostile to the white settlers who are coming in and I don't know if you know this but like my route is better because there's no natives there so he started the rumor about oh yes and so Kleiman comes in with Hastings who is essentially like famous and he's like dude do not go to this Hastings cutoff you guys have way too much shit I just came on foot with a horse at some point and you guys have this giant wagon all these women and children it's just not just don't do it you know well also he's literally covered in blood and scratches yeah like it's not like he had a fun easy time on this shortcut exactly young virginia reed recalled later that during the first part of the trip she was quote perfectly happy end quote in fact most everyone was in high spirits and excited about the adventure ahead at the beginning of the journey because they're they're going on this um new life mission and uh in the indifferent stars above one of the sources which is a great book you guys should read listen to it on audio like i love to read but whoever's narrating it on an audio is like doing like an old-timey voice and it's really fun love that he talks about how one of the girls Uh, from the Graves family, she had just gotten married to this guy, Jay Fosdick, Sarah Graves and Jay Fosdick. And it wasn't like an arranged marriage. They actually loved each other. 
And she was like torn between this difficult decision of like staying in the town with Jay and his family or like leaving with her family. And if her family left to go on this trail, she would never see them again. And she had like raised some of those kids like she had spent her whole life living in this like one room cabin with them. Right. And then the other thing that would happen is they were so poor that they couldn't really afford to do like um, like a fun like a honeymoon, essentially. And so she was thinking like, oh, if we go on this trip to start our new life in California, we're going to get to have a honeymoon. We're going to get to do all this stuff. I'll get to see my family. So like, let's go. Right. Uh-huh. So like they were excited to go. Like a lot of people at the beginning of the trip had high spirits. And it's not like it was all just like hard bullshit the whole time. A lot of our national parks are where these like trails would cross through and they would party. They would drink certain landmarks. They would go and they would like carve their names into stuff like you can go to the national parks and still see these pioneer names carved into the wood oh I I had no carved into the rock yeah yeah and Independence Rock like on July 4th they would have a giant celebration there and it was supposed to be super fun and everyone got really wild and drunk and they would like have music and stuff they had a good time it was fun right yeah I mean phrasing it like that I mean why not do your honeymoon there because if you're too poor to like plan a trip somewhere else like this is your one opportunity to maybe do something fun yeah but then you know it starts to get hot and they start to get like a little bit over traveling and after July 4th they have this huge 4th of July party at Fort Laramie which is this major morale booster for everyone and they kind of get to like rest and chill and repair all their stuff while they're there the, the adults are talking about this Hastings cutoffs ahead. And most people are like, no, 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 we're not taking it. We're just going to take the route that everyone's taking. But James Reed is like, no, 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 no. I believe we should take this. Look, I fought a war with Abraham Lincoln. How can you argue with me? <laughs> yeah, he's really milking it. Was it. This is the same guy that said he was Irish? Uh, he said he was from noble Polish stock. But in Ireland, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I can see why people were like, this man is ostentatious and obnoxious because he's just like, I know best. We're going to take this shortcut or by Jove, I'm not ostentatious McGee from the land of Ireland of royal lineage who fought with Abe Lincoln. <laughs> exactly. So by July 17th, they get to Independence Rock. And that's where I said they would have this big 4th of July party. Well, they would have that July 4th. So it's July 17th now. So they're late. They know that they're really late. And they run into this lone rider who is going east. And the lone rider has an open letter from Hastings. Because one of the things they would do to communicate with each other in these big wagon trains is like someone from the front of the train would be like, oh, there's a fucking dead uh, bird up here. Like send a letter to the back to say go around it you know whatever yeah so they run into one of these people and they have this open letter from Hastings and Hastings is warning the caravan in this letter he warns the immigrants that they need to prepare for opposition against the Mexican authorities in California he suggests that the immigrants stick together in large groups to defend themselves and he conveniently tells them that he has this new and better secret shortcut to California which they had heard about already from James Kleiman he says they're going to meet less opposition they're going to get to California sooner and best 
Best of all, he says that he'll be waiting at Fort Bridger to guide anyone who wants to go with him on the new, safer, easier route to California. And that new information of like, oh, he's going to go and guide us added another piece of information that James Reed is like, no, 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 everything's fine. Look, he's going to go with us. This information causes this huge fight in fighting within the wagon train. Some people want to try the new shortcut. Most people believe that Hastings is untrustworthy and they're just like, let's stick to the original plan. A week later, the caravan comes to a fork in the road at Black's Fork in western Wyoming. And this is where the trail literally splits in two. There's a northern route that goes towards Fort Hall, Idaho, and a southern route that goes to Fort Bridger and the Hastings Cutoff, where Hastings is like, I'll meet you guys there. The caravan camps there for a few days to rest and repair. The decision of which trail to take created so much debate among the adults that it's said that some of the women like made their own camp called the women's camp. Like they didn't even want to be near the men. Because um, the men are just arguing and annoying. Yeah, like everyone's just really distraught about this because remember that some of the these random wagons they've just picked up along the trail like they've oh, just joined true. their train right so they don't really know each other that well but they're kind of like all sticking together because it's safer but they're also like hey those people in front of us are crazy mormons you know yeah, and yeah. One's like yeah we're catholics like fuck them right right most of the caravan that is made up by these seasoned pioneers w- who were like super hardened and experienced at camping they decided to stick to the original trail and go north But the Donners, the Reeds, the Murphys, and the Breens, plus a few others, decide to try this new Hastings cutoff that Hastings had written about. And I want to point out that the governor of Missouri, Mr. Boggs, Lilburn Boggs, that was leading them is like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm not going to go on that shortcut. So now there's like a need for a new leader in the smaller caravan that's going to take the shortcut. And Reed, of course, puts himself forward and he's like, I have military experience. I should lead this. this." I fought with Abe Lincoln. Again, bringing out the (laughs) Abraham Lincoln experience. But people in the caravan just think he's super annoying. (laughs) So they choose George Donner because he's like more chill and he's humble and kind. So Donner is chosen to be the leader of the new party, which is now known as the Donner Party that split off to go on the cutoff. So they split from this main caravan and they head off towards Fort Bridger to make this shortcut and meet Hastings. But the only problem is, by the time they get to Fort Bridger, they're already days behind the other lead wagons that had already gotten to Fort Bridger. And so Hastings had already left with 40 wagons on the caravan for the cutoff. So the Donner Reeds are going to have to make the shortcut alone. But Hastings leaves back letters and he's like, it's fine. Follow my notes along the road or whatever and um, meet up with me and then like I'll help you guys. And so they're like, "Okay, let's do it. According to the sources, this journalist named Edwin Bryant, remember who we had spoken about earlier, he had gone ahead with Russell and he had taken that shortcut with Hastings a week ahead of the Donner party. And he was leaving them several notes back at Fort Bridger that he thought it would be way too difficult for the group to pass because they have too many women, too many children, too much wagons, too much shit. He warns them to avoid the cutoff at all costs. He leaves several warnings to the group via letters not to take this Hastings shortcut, but the letters were mysteriously never received by the Donner Party at Fort Bridger. And coincidentally, the owner of a trading post at Fort Bridger would have more business if people used the Hastings cutoff. So Bridger 
tells the party that the shortcut is way better than the other trails because there's no rugged country or hostile natives and it's going to shorten their journey by 350 miles. He did say there was like a little bit of a dry portion, but that water would be found after a couple of days on the dry lake bed. And Reed, again, super excited about all this info. He advocates for the shortcut despite all of the other warnings. And it's a super debated issue. According to the sources, Tamsin Donner was, quote, gloomy, sad, and dispirited end quote, at the thought of taking the shortcut because she considered Hastings, quote, a selfish adventurer, end quote. But Reed, under the pressure of being behind schedule, was like adamant that the shortcut was a good idea and they're going to make up for lost time. Long story short, he just fucking decides to do it. And some believe after this journey that Bridger had kept the letters from the Donner Party and James Kleiman had seconded this belief because James actually knew Bridger, the guy who owns the the store that's keeping the letters, from a previous army gig that they did together. And I'm super excited to talk about this because I haven't heard this story referenced in any other Donner research. So here's this little side piece of info that I found. The Jim Bridger guy and James Kleiman knew each other through this mutual famous mountain man named Hugh Glass that was mauled by a grizzly and left for dead only to crawl back 200 miles sustained on berries with no supplies whatsoever. And that movie The Revenant is based on him. What? And when I read his name, Huge Glass, I was like huge ass, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, his name is Hugh Glass. That's fucking badass. Long story short, in 1822, this general named William Ashley put out an ad wanting men for a corps of a hundred men who would be known as Ashley's 100 to ascend the river Missouri as part of a fur trading venture. Most of the people who responded and became part of this Ashley's 100 went on to become famous mountain men, including Jim Bridger and James Kleiman. This mountaineer named Hugh Glass was hunting for the food supply when he accidentally ran into a mother grizzly bear with two cubs. The grizzly bear charged him, picked him up with her teeth, and then slashed him with her claws, exposing his ribs, breaking his leg, and threw him on the ground. He became unconscious. The rest of the hunting party killed the bear, but the men thought that Hugh Glass would not survive. So they carried Hugh Glass for two days, but he was slowing them down, and they figured that he's not going to survive his injuries anyway. So the leader asks for two volunteers to stay with this dying, cut-up man until he died and bury him. Two men came forward, John S. Fitzgerald, and a man later identified as Bridges, volunteer, and they start digging his grave in front of him while he's watching them. And as they're digging his grave, the guys are like, oh, fuck, we're being attacked by natives and they take all of Hugh's stuff his rifle his supplies everything and they just run back to the army they told everyone that Hugh Glass had died and that they had taken his stuff back with them because they were attacked and so they had to take his stuff well that's not true and Hugh Glass regained consciousness and he found himself abandoned in the woods with festering wounds broken bones he set the bone of his own leg then he wrapped himself in the bear hide that those two guys had placed over him as a funeral shroud and he began crawling 200 miles back to Fort Kiowa on this journey he ate wild berries and roots and to prevent gangrene he allowed maggots to eat dead infected flesh in his wounds and then he fashions this raft from it's just like very crude from like floating shit and he floats downstream to Fort Kiowa this journey takes him six weeks 
And when he got back, he vows that he's going to find Bridges and Fitzgerald and he's going to fucking kill them. Yeah. Apparently, he finds Bridges and he forgives him because he's like, oh, he's just young, right? But he thought that Fitzgerald should know better. Like, he should have been like to Bridges, like, no, we're not going to do this. Like, right. we need to honor this guy. He fought alongside of us and like is going to die. Like, we need to honor him, right? So he's like, I'm going to fucking murder that guy. <laughs> he reenlists with Ashley's army. They all thought he was dead. He fucking shows up. He finds Fitzgerald with his stolen rifle, just chilling. He's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. But the company is like, if you kill him, then we're going to have to kill you because you're killing a U.S. soldier. But the captain like hears his story and he's like, yeah, that's really fucked up. <laughs> like, so um, I'm going to make Fitzgerald give you the stolen rifle back. So he gives it back to him. And as Hugh Glass is leaving, he tells Fitzgerald that he could never leave the army or he will kill him because he's no longer going to be a soldier. Right. So Bridges, like, because he was young, he didn't really survive the story or whatever. But people think that that's Jim Bridger because eventually Jim Bridger was part of this, like, 100-man army corps or whatever. And that kid said his name was Bridges. So people think that that's him. So that's the world that these people are living in. Like, Lanceford Hastings, he's a crook. Jim Bridger, he's a crook, right? Like, it's kind of like everyone out for themselves. You are like hunting for food for us and get attacked by a grizzly. Like this is good because now we can take your shit. Right. And leave you to die. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I had no clue that the Revenant was based on a true story. Yes. So uh, Lanceford Hastings is also a crook. I'm not going to get super into him because he could have his own fucking story about him. But if you rewind four years to April of 1842, there's this lawyer. His name is Lanceford Hastings. He leaves Ohio. He goes to Alta, California. He sees California, which barely has any people in it because it's Mexico and there's not that many people there yet. And he's like, we're going to take over because I'm just going to send a bunch of people over here. And then I'm going to take an office of this new California Republic. So he writes The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. Again, he like pitched this fake shortcut thing that he had actually never traveled. He just looked at a map and he was like, huh, this trail is like really windy. If we just didn't wind and we just went straight, then we would like save a lot of time. So that's what we should do instead. But he was being an idiot because the reason the trail was windy is it was avoiding the fucking Salt Lake Desert. Oh. It was avoiding the Salt Lake Desert and it was avoiding the Wasatch Mountain Range, which are like fucking mountains because who the fuck is going to get a team of oxen with a wagon over a mountain peak nobody yeah yeah so he basically fucked them back to 1846 it's four days after black fork getting repairs and resting they are already are 11 days behind the group that went with hastings at this point for some reason they're joined by another family who's like okay this is a great idea the mccutcheons they claim to have knowledge of the natives and terrain to california so i think that this is what gives their group the confidence to go on they're like look they have already gone ahead with hastings on this shortcut And now we're going with people who have already gone to California and they know the natives. So like this is safe. So they set off on this trail. The first five days go super well. They're making really good time. They're following the tracks of the wagon ruts that are on this group led by Hastings. But the sixth day, they get a note from Hastings that warns them that the road ahead is just impassable and they should send someone ahead to get instructions. So James Reed and two other people get on horses. They ride out. They follow the tracks, get ahead. And four days later, Reed returns and he says that he 
he found Hastings and Hastings had ridden part of the way back with him and they just got to the top of this mountain and Hastings sort of like pointed to an alternate route for the wagons to take. So then they separated and Reed had to blaze a trail of his own to get back to the party. And then they had to blaze a trail of their own with the wagons. So it took several days to get through all of this shit. They're super slowed down because they're blazing a new fucking trail through this rugged terrain. Um, they have to like unload the wagons and reload them to walk the oxen over like hills that it can't get over. I mean, it's just like you can imagine trying to take a fucking 2,500 pound covered wagon through the wilderness where there's no trail. It's giving me a lot of anxiety to just imagine like how desperate and annoying and like like just exhausting that whole process would be. They literally make new roads. And the following year, the Mormon parties who are immigrating to Utah don't even try to take the trail that the Donners had taken, even though it was already carved out for them. They just made a new trail on the other side of the mountain. I feel that. Ten days later, they enter the Salt Lake Valley, and they have 600 miles left to go and only one month of summer left to get there. August 25th, in the evening, one of their men, Luke Holleran, dies of tuberculosis, and they bury him in this coffin at a fork in the road the following day. They bury him in salt. Like, one of the diaries writes how supposedly he was, like, buried in salt so he can't decay. And then they open up all of his shit and they find out that he was a Freemason. What? This is really weird. This is not talked about in Donner stuff. So you have this mass Mormon migration that is going to Utah, right? I didn't realize this, but there's a connection between the Freemasons and the Mormons, which we'll talk, we'll get into later. But obviously the the Mormons don't really like like us being like, oh, you guys are like a secret New World Order organization. And the Freemasons don't like us being like, you guys are a secret New World Organization. Or they do. I don't know. Fucking defend yourself then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the guy who invented Mormonism whatever what was his name Harlan oh, Young some, Brigham Young Brigham, no wasn't it was it Brigham Young I thought it was John Smith or something was the guy that found the golden tablets oh whoever it was was a Freemason and like there's like a lot of symbolism and rituals and stuff that are like within the Mormon culture that are like Freemason things oh interesting so there's like this unique connection between them and apparently the Reed family were, were Freemasons too James Breen in a letter to a historian in 1878 described the burial. Quote, Holleran's body was buried in a bed of almost pure salt beside the grave of one who had perished in the preceding train. It is said at the time that bodies thus deposited would not decompose on account of the preservative properties of the salt. Soon after his burial, his trunk was opened and Masonic papers and regalia bore witness to the fact that Mr. Holleran was a member of the Masonic Order. James F. Reed, Milton Elliott, and perhaps one or two others in the train also belonged to the mystic tie. So, I don't know, seems kind of haunted. That does seem haunted. The party finds another note from Hastings that is warning them of this two-day dry drive ahead where they're not going to have any water. So, again, they have to slow down to collect as much water and grass as possible for for this two-day journey through the fucking Salt Lake Desert. Have you seen the Salt Lake Desert? Yes. And as, but as you were saying, I would love to see more pictures. I don't know if you have more, but as you're saying this, like, oh, we had to gather grass and water and stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, because of the oxen as well. I don't know why. I was just thinking, oh, 
why don't they just have like a bunch of canteens or whatever for themselves? But no, you need a shit ton of water for oxen. Here's some pictures of the Salt Lake Desert. People like yeah. who haven't seen this stuff, you guys should look at some of these pictures on Let's Get Haunted and Google them because the place They're is crazy. crazy looking. It's just like a giant like salt covered plain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's white. It's white sand salt like and mountains in the distance. One of the things that happens obviously is that this fucking trek doesn't take two days. On the third day, their water runs out and that night the reeds some of their oxen just run off like they're just like fuck this they just fucking leave and they're never found again some sources suggest that they were stolen by like local natives and others suggest that the oxen just bailed the doom trip to go find water nonetheless they have no oxen to pull the wagon so the reeds have to take a few things and the myth is that they bury their shit but historians say that this isn't true and that they found evidence of this being false when other parties the following year find their things unburied some people are like well maybe the wind blew I don't know but so they were fucking freaking out because they literally just took their shit out of their wagons left it where it was some of their cattle and oxen had run away and if shit gets bad like if they can't find any food like they're in the middle of a desert they can always butcher one of their animals to eat oh good point but now this shit is like run off or I was actually reading an account by Virginia May and she talks about how one of the cattle just like lost its mind she said can I ever forget that night in the desert when we walked mile after mile in the darkness every step seeming to be the very last we could take suddenly all fatigue was banished by fear through the night came a swift rushing sound of one of the young steers crazed by thirst and apparently bent upon our destruction. My father, holding his youngest child in his arms and keeping us all close behind him, drew his pistol. But finally, the maddened beast turned and dashed off into the darkness. Reed recounted these events of being in this Salt Lake prison horrible place. In 1871, in an article for the Pacific Rural Press, he says, quote, In the course of the night, the children became exhausted. I stopped, spread a blanket, and laid them down, covering them with shawls. In a short time, a cold hurricane commenced blowing. The children soon complained of the cold. Having four dogs with us, I had them lie down with the children outside the covers. They were then kept warm. Miss Reed and myself, sitting to the windward, helped shelter them from the storm. Very soon, one of the dogs jumped up and started out barking the others following and making an attack on something approaching us. Very soon, I got sight of an animal making directly for us. The dog seizing it changed its course, and when passing, I discovered it to be one of my young steers. Incautiously stating that it was mad, in a moment my wife and children started to their feet, scattering like quail, and it was some minutes before I could quietly camp. There was no more complaining of being tired or sleepy, the balance of the night. So uh, one of their oxen that had run off came back and was just nuts. One of the bulls like came back and was like trying to fucking gore them. Oh, my God. So they're freezing their ass off. They have no water. They're in the cold desert in the middle of the night. It's so cold that James Reed puts all of his children together like in a pile and then has the dogs sleep on top of them to keep warm. And then him and his wife are like in front of the kids, like taking the brunt of the wind that's coming on because there's like this cold windstorm. She can't get worse, right? Wrong. Well, while you're in your little huddle for warmth pile, 
a fucking crazed bull like starts pawing the ground and like snorting and looking at you like it's gonna fucking just gore into you oh my god and then the dogs start barking it at it and it like chases it off and it leaves but shit's not cool no, so that seems haunted yeah as they, well. they've lost a lot of shit long story short it's now been five days to cross this desert which Hastings said would only take two days and by now they've lost 36 cattle half of them were reeds and four wagons which were full of supplies and necessities they just were abandoned and they spend the next week at the foot of this giant mountain called Pilot Peak that they were uh, supposed to go over next that they had been like working towards in the desert the whole time. They're, they're just hunting for their cattle and they're just trying like to find any of their shit that they can. They're bearing more because they're like, we're not going to get the cattle back. Um, And they're just basically fucked. The Donner Party had set out again. And at this point, they know that they're not going to have enough food. So they send two men ahead to Sutter's Fort to request more food. Two weeks later, they get to the Humboldt River and this is where the cutoff meets with the standard trail at this point they have two natives join their party for a while as guides and there's some debate of whether or not these natives were like actually enslaved people so I'm just gonna add that in there not sure this is where things start getting really haunted after eating with the party the two natives just bounce in the middle of the night they're like fuck this and according to some sources the guides were thought to have believed the Donners were cursed Wendigos and left immediately. What? According to other sources, they're thought to have stolen one of the men's shirts that night and some of the cattle. Either way, these native guides bailed and a shirt went missing and some cattle went missing. And this interaction seems to have foretold an unfortunate relationship with local indigenous people in the area for the party from now on. But do you know what a Wendigo is? I have heard of them before, but I've never looked deeply into them. So a Wendigo is like this native... I guess you could call it a, a cryptid, but essentially it's the idea that it's this evil malevolent spirit that can possess humans and makes them crave human flesh, turning to like cannibalistic oh. creatures. It also is believed to cause murder. It's just an evil malevolent spirit that like hates people. Interesting. And it possesses people. And the danger is if you run into them, they, they can possess you too. Or it's said that like if you taste human flesh, then you can perhaps turn into a Wendigo. Interesting. So they're like, fuck that. On October 5th, a turning point for the worst happens. The party has to get over this really sandy hill and the terrain is extremely challenging because it's sandy. At one point, there's like this crash and the Reed's oxen team and the Graves oxen team get tangled up and it's part of their wagon breaks. You know, like one wagon falls back on top of all the other wagons. And this was like the final fucking straw. There was a giant fight that breaks out between one of Reed's teamsters and one of Graves' teamsters. And Reed intervenes, at, like, as these two people are fighting, like, fuck you, you caused this, you caused this. Reed gets a knife out and he starts cutting the entangled, like, oxen apart or whatever. And Graves' teamster gets really angry and he threatens to hit Reed on the head with his whip handle. According to one of the sources, the whip handle breaks into Reed's skull and causes bleeding. And then this teamster, David. Snyder he lifts the whip up again to hit Reed and Reed just fucking stabs him in the chest with a knife it goes through one of his ribs into the lung and this guy David Snyder this teamster he just like stumbles up the hill a few feet and dies and Damn. everyone in this party they they see this and they're all just like completely disgusted because they all really liked David Snyder he was like a good-looking guy he like played instruments and did little jigs for them <laughs> 
they thought he was really cool. And they, there's some of them think that it's Reed's fault because remember, they thought he was like a pompous asshole. Right. And others think that, no, 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 it was David Snyder's fault. And someone suggests that they even hang Reed. And one of these like German dudes that was there named Kesseberg is like, you can use the plank from my wagon to hang him. But instead, they all decide like they're not going to murder him in front of his wife and children. So they just banish him from the group. And at first, Reed is like, no, I'm not leaving. I won't leave. I won't leave. But then by morning, he's like, okay, okay, I'll leave. I'll leave. He's like, all right, that is actually a pretty good alternative to like yes. dying. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the next day, Reed, who's this banished solo traveler, heads out west on the trail and he takes one of his teamsters named Walter Heron with him to go to California because time is running out. Now, everyone's panicking. Shit's going to get bad. But if they hurry, they think they can get through the Sierras before snowfall makes it impossible because they still have a little bit of time, right? Demonstrating this point, the day after Reed is banished, the man that thought they should hang Reed for stabbing and killing the teamster kicks an elderly Belgian man that was traveling with him out of the wagon to lighten the load because they're in such a hurry. And everyone who can walk is like walking next to the wagons. But there's like this elderly Belgian man who can't walk and he was sitting in the wagon so they're like no fucking get out and everyone just keeps passing and they're like we can't take you we can't take you we can't take you oh my god he sits down by the side of the road and no one takes him in their wagons and then he's just never seen again <gasps> that is heartbreaking isn't that so sad a belgian man they just make like chocolates a, an old belgian man just sit- no that's gonna make me cry yeah tell me something else it's gonna get worse Three days after this incident, some of these Paiute tribe members kill 21 of the Donner Party's oxen and steal 18 oxen and wound several others. And now they've lost more than 100 of their cattle, so their emergency food supply is almost empty. Three days later, it's October 13th, and there's another German immigrant. His name is Wolfinger. He stops at the Humboldt sink to bury stuff from his wagon since all of his cattle were stolen. Two men named Joseph Reinhardt and Augustus Spitzer stay behind to help him, but they return to the party without him. And then they claim that he had been killed by the natives as well, the peyotes. Here's a picture of this Humboldt sink. What am I even looking at? I don't know. I thought it was a sinkhole, but it's like looks like a dry lake bed. But why do they call it a sink? I don't know what it is. I thought you might know because you're from California. No, but I know all I know is Humboldt is the land of people growing... Illegal weed. It is a dry lake bed. Okay, well then call it the Humboldt Lake. Right, yeah, call it the Humboldt Dry Lake Bed, all right? I wouldn't see a road and call it a bathtub. Exactly. October 16th, the Donner Party arrives at the Truckee River, and this is going to lead them to the Sierra Nevada. So they're like, okay, you know what? It's mid-October. We can fucking finish this shit. Let's do it. But John Breen says, quote, the weather was already very cold, and heavy clouds hanging over the mountains to the west were strong indications of an approaching winter. Some wanted to stop and rest their cattle. Others, in fear of the snow, were in favor of pushing ahead as fast as possible, end quote. The party is split. Some of them are like, no, 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 we need to stop and rest our cattle because they're not going to survive and we need them to survive if we're going to get to California. And the others are like, we're not going to fucking survive if we don't make it over these mountains before the snow comes. October 25th, the food's almost depleted. This is six weeks after those men first went to the Sutter's Fort for food resupplies. Charles Stanton finally returns from Sutter's Fort and he brings seven mules loaded 
loaded with provisions and two native guides who were possibly enslaved, we don't know, named Lewis and Salvador. Charles Stanton has really good news. He says, according to the guides, the pass through the Sierras should be open for at least another month. But the bad news is that William McCutcheon, one of the men who went with him, is ill and is remaining at Sutter's Fort. Finally, three days later, James Reed, the banished solo traveler, arrives at Sutter's Fort and he runs into McCutcheon and like hears of like all of the party's issues that have happened. So he knows like, okay, shit's going to get real. And he starts kind of like trying to get his shit together to go help them out. At this time, William Foster accidentally shoots his brother-in-law, William Pike, who dies a short time later. Life was just so hard, right? According to A New Light on the Donner Party by Kristen Johnson, quote, At the encampment near Reno, Nevada, while they were busily preparing to start, the two men were cleaning or loading a pistol. It was an old-fashioned pepper box. It happened while they were examining it that wood was called for to replenish the fire. One of the men offered to procure it and in order to do so, handed the pistol to the other. Everybody knows that the pepper box is a very uncertain weapon. Somehow, in the transfer, the pistol discharged. William Pike was fatally wounded and died in about 20 minutes. Miss Pike was left a widow with two small children. The youngest, Catherine, was a babe of only a few months old, and Naomi was only three years of age. The sadness and distress occasioned by this mournful accident cast a gloom over the entire company and seemed an omen for the terrible fate which overshadowed the Donner Party, end quote. So they they camp out here and they're like, all right, tomorrow we're going to fucking climb up this pike. It's going to take a day and then we're going to be good. Uh, so Reed knows that the shit's about to get real and he tries to go give the party like provisions, right? Like he gets these mules with supplies and he starts heading out to the mountains to give it to the families. But he meets like there's like deep snow already on his side of the mountain and he can't get up and over so he buries some of the stuff like he caches some of the stuff and he's going to come back later when the snow melts or whatever or like when he has more forces to help get over it now it's spook day october 31st 1846 halloween on halloween the front axle of george donner's family wagon breaks while making a new axle from that like crash that happened oh on the sandy hill and george cuts his hand really badly while he's making this new axle it immediately becomes infected and it slows the donner party down behind the other wagons because it's still toxic masculinity like he's not gonna let the other people do stuff but he like just can't use that hand anymore so he's doing everything one-handed but the other wagons are still continuing on in hopes of making it over the pass before winter patrick breen writes up this time quote we pushed on as fast as our failing cattle could haul our almost empty wagons at last we reached the foot of the main ridge near the Truckee Lake. It was sundown. The weather was clear, but a large circle surrounded the moon, indicated an approaching storm, end quote. So they're camping at the bottom of the lake. They're a thousand feet below the summit. They all go to bed, ready to wake up and like hit the trail. And I guess during the night, a blizzard hit the summit of the mountain above. And when they woke up, They see the snow on top of the summit of the mountain and they're fucking terrified. Like, it's just, oh my God, the snow. Like, like, like waking up to screaming, right? Because people are like, ah, there's snow, you know? 
So the snow is a fucking month early. And to, to put this in perspective, that winter of uh, 1846 to 1847 is one of the coldest winters on record for the northern hemisphere. Oh, wow. So it was literally just the perfect storm of everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Yes. Like and it's one more thing on top of everything else. And that's what people say when they talk about this is they're like, it's almost like cursed. Like everything that led them to where they were, it like happened like on purpose almost. Oh, interesting. So they get all of their stuff together and they just like book it trying to get up over the summit before there's too much snow. But in between the time of waking up and heading out, the snow is already five foot deep on the summit. An immigrant and one of those native guides, Lewis and Salvador, which that's not even their real names. Those were just like their names given to them. <laughs> they reach the summit, but they turn back as the others are just, they're just too exhausted to go. So that night they try to make a fire, but it's too wet and they have to form a tent made of humans as tent poles and throw like whatever soggy fucking blankets they have and just huddle against the mountain while it's snowing. So they have like no tent, nothing. And the snow literally covers them. There's like feet of snow above them when they wake up it said that like when they woke up they just are like terrified because the scenery has completely changed like they don't know where they are like they can't push up out of this like human tent quote all i could see was snow everywhere i shouted at the top of my voice suddenly here and there all about me heads popped up through the snow the scene was not unlike one might imagine at the resurrection when people rise up out of the earth the terror amounted to panic the mules were lost, the cattle strayed away, and our further progress rendered impossible, end quote. The next day, they're like, okay, fuck, we're just gonna have to stay here for the winter. And they return to the lake, even though they're only 150 miles away from Sutter's Fort and they just want to get there. They decide that they're gonna have to camp the winter because they can't get over this mountain, at least while there's blizzards here. The snowdrifts were already as tall as 25 feet. Like it, it, it like literally snowed feet on feet on feet that night. And at this point, they're all fucking pissed at each other. They all hate each other. It's everyone's fault. And so they're kind of like, fuck you. Like none of them are really communicating with each other. It said that if they would have just gone down like backwards down the trail a little bit in elevation that they wouldn't have had to have this like such a hard winter but they were all super tired and maybe they felt like going backwards would just like defeat the efforts that they already had we're not really sure why they decided to camp where they were we think it's because they're like oh this is a blizzard that came early it'll end and then once it ends we'll cross but it just never fucking stopped snowing that's Some so frustrating too because like you said they're only 150 miles away from like an area where they would be saved but yeah. they are, there's nothing they can do yeah and some people point to that decision as like evidence that they were already starting to decay mentally like they're not eating very well they just spent the night in like freezing hypothermic conditions um so there's a lot of debate as to why they made certain decisions maybe they were windangos i don't know according to wikipedia Quote, there were essentially two separate camps, the cabins around the lake and the camps at Elder Creek. At the lake, three widely separated pine log cabins that had been built by previous immigrants along the trail and were abandoned served as their homes, end quote. The Breen family were able to pile into a cabin that was already made. So these cabins are made by like other immigrant families who had come here like the years before and like had to camp out for whatever reason before like continuing up 
past the mountains. Basically, whatever families get there first occupy these little cabins, but they're like shitty fucking cabins. I'll show you a picture in a second. So the Fosters, Eddie and the Pike families build a cabin against this large rock and they put 16 people into it. These cabins had dirt floors. They were really poorly constructed. They had flat roofs that leaked when it rained. They used canvas and oxide to patch these roofs, but there's no windows or doors. There's only a large hole for entry. It was super, super primitive. The Breen's occupied one cabin, the Eddie's and the Murphy's the other, and the Reed's and the Graves the third. Kesseberg, who is this German immigrant that was with them, built a lean-to for his family against the side of the Breen cabin. And apparently Franklin Graves never wore shoes or a hat except in the dead of winter. They were, they're hardy people is what I'm getting at, right? Like they were not like soft people, but these cabins in this weather was like no one, no one could really do well there. Of the 60 at Truckee Lake, 19 were men over 18, 12 were women, and 29 were children, six of whom were toddlers or younger. And this rock that they built the side of the cabin on still stands today. You can go see it. And I'm going to show you a picture of this rock. See the rock? Yeah. And what above is like how the cabin was. So that site is where the cabin was? Yes. That's the exact rock that they built again. Wow. This lake has been renamed Donner Lake, and this pass has been renamed Donner Pass. It was called Truckee Lake at that time. Wow. Yeah. So Natalia's showing me like a giant boulder that has a huge plaque screwed into it. And it has what looks like names mm-hmm. listed in columns, but I'm not positive because it's su- such tiny writing that I'm not sure. And then you can see up above there, it's kind of like a illustration of what the cabin looked like. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't even call it a cabin. It like, it's three walls up against a rock. And then yeah. over the top of the walls is like a blanket or something yeah Yeah. because the Donners were already behind everyone because George Donner had this like hand issue going on that was cut they were like a way further days hike from everyone else it was like five miles like hike their homes were literally tents which is why the Donner family suffered more than any other family they tried to make a cabin like they started cutting down wood and all of this stuff but they needed shelter immediately because it was just snowing so hard it was going to take too long to build a cabin so they just bailed on that idea and they made these tents. Their campsite by Alder Creek was higher in elevation than the cabins, which they couldn't have known. And the Donner families had made tents for 21 people. Also at Alder Creek, Miss Wolfinger and her child. Remember how her husband had been like murdered by the peyotes? Yes. They were still there. And the Donner's drivers, which was their hired help, was six men, three women, and they also had 12 children in all. So long story short, there's a bunch of fucking people and most of them are kids right after they make these temporary camps, which are really only supposed to get them through one fucking storm so then they can go cross the pass. It begins to snow again the evening of November 4th. And this is the beginning of a storm that lasts eight days Also, George Donner's hand now is not usable. It's gangrenous and it's starting to travel up his arm. So he can't even use his arm now. A lot of these single people, like the hired people, they were on their own. So they just made lean-tos or tents. And the single people, like, they... They were hired, right? They didn't have a family. So the Donners are like, we hired you. So help us build our cabin or help us build our tent or whatever, or like help us butcher this or like help us do this. And then at the end of the workday, it's like, okay, bye. But like, there's nowhere for them to go. So they like just go to like sleep out basically in the elements because no one knew that they were going to be here long. 
So here is a recreation of what the tent that the Donners lived in looked like. It was like a pine brush tent. Oh, that looks like shit. First of all, there's holes all throughout it. Like wind, snow, it's the essentially are definitely coming in. Yeah, when we think tent, we think of something that's like, uh, I feel like a lot more uh, like uh, hospitable than this. This is a bunch of branches of pine trees that are like leaned up against a tree and over them is like a shitty like like canvas wagon cover has been like placed over these pine boughs and then all of them are just in there huddled yeah it looks like a piece of shit you guys like it looks like a hole in the ground yeah yeah it's not it's it's nothing so here's a map you guys want to see this map you can go to let's at let's get haunted on instagram and you can see like where all those little white things are like pointing out the different families where they're camped oh oh wow yeah i don't know why it's just so interesting to see like all the little white dots because when you're hearing the story even though you're explaining like all the families that were on this trip it's still like hard to visualize that many people but yeah there's like a ton of people just camped out on different points yeah and they're all camped out around this lake but then some of them are a little bit further back along the creek the snow begins to pile up and so do the bodies most of the livestock had already been lost in the desert remember and the rest was starving so it barely had any meat on it anyways and the meat that they had was only going to last a few weeks but it was okay because this was all temporary as soon as this weird early storm ended like they're going to be fine they still had a couple weeks to get over the mountains lewis and salvador were like yeah you got another month open you know so they're thinking like this is all temporary. If I can just make it to the end of this week, I can just get to the next step. Well, the animals began to die of starvation. Their oxen began to die and the carcasses are frozen and stacked. The pioneers, you would think, oh, you're on a lake, right? So catch some fish. Well, in winter, the fish stay away from the banks because the banks are much colder. So you have to have a boat to get to them. And they obviously didn't have a boat and to get wet would be like instant death. Eddie, actually in this time hunted and killed a fucking bear which is pretty awesome dude fuck yeah yeah he, he didn't really have a whole lot of luck after that but here here <laughs> is the account of killing the bear graves and eddie went out after a bear having put into his mouth this is about william eddie by the way having put into his mouth the only bullet that was not in his gun so that he might reload quickly in case of an emergency he deliberately fired the bear immediately reared upon its hind feet and seeing the smoke from mr eddie's gun ran fiercely towards him with an open jaw by the time the gun was reloaded the bear reached the tree and with a fierce growl pursued mr eddie around it who running swifter than the animal came up with it in the rear and disabled it by a shot in the shoulder so that it was no longer able to pursue him. He then dispatched the bear by knocking it on the head with a club. Upon examination, he found that the first shot had pierced its heart. He then returned to mountain camp for assistance to bring in his prize. They, however, finally contrived to get in the bear after dark. Mr. Eddie gave one half to Mr. Foster for use of the gun. A part of it was likewise given to Mr. Graves and Miss Reed. The bear weighed about 800 pounds. The Reed and the Eddie families had lost almost everything on the trail so margaret reed eventually asked the graves for an ox and to demonstrate like how these families felt about each other margaret reed promised to pay double for the ox when she got to california for the use of these three oxen from the graves and the breen families and graves charged 25 dollars, which was normally the cost of two healthy oxen for the carcass of an ox that had been starved to death and had like no meat on it so it's kind of like it's hard to say whether they all are just like fuck you because they're sick of being together and they like think everything is everyone else's fault or if they're like 
oh, we kind of need to keep our shit to ourselves because after Eddie kills that bear, none of it was given to the Donner family. Right. He gives half of it to the guy that let him borrow his gun. And then he gives a little bit to the other family so that he can have some of their like oxen carcass or whatever. But you can kind of see how some of them are sort of banding together. And this is where this like Masonic conspiracy sort of comes in because they say that Reed was one of the Masons and perhaps Breen was one of the Masons as well. And they had found the Masonic papers or whatever in like Wolfinger stuff. So I don't know. Maybe that has a time. Maybe it doesn't. It's just provocative. They try to leave this shitty camp several times because it's not looking good. It's snow is coming down super heavy and they're like, you know what? Maybe the snow is not going to stop. Let's just try to go anyways. And Franklin Graves takes control and he gets groups together. He's like, we're going to go on this pass on foot. But they fail the first time. Then they go a second time and they're like, we're going to go on the pass on foot. Then they fail a third time. And they keep doing this until people are like, okay, I'm not going to like go try to do this anymore because it's not happening. At this point, most of the hired help and the single people who weren't in families that had like butchered meat began to eat mice. They're like running after mice and fighting for them. They start eating their buffalo hide, which like makes up their equipment and their coats and stuff. They're eating their fucking shoes. Like the hired help, the single people on this like really fared the worst because they didn't really bring any supplies for themselves and they were hired by these families right because they were just thinking like oh yeah like all they'll feed me exactly well i'm sure that was in the ad right like hey you don't need to bring anything everything's free you just need to come and help us get to california and all of your wildest dreams will come true so i'm sure like the type of people that that ad attracts is going to be like an able-bodied strong dude but like is also by himself and probably doesn't have a lot of his own resources or money some of them were like super inexperienced but some of them were like experienced pioneers who like had a gun with them and figured they'd be able to hunt but it was like winter there's nothing there you know Patrick Breen around this time begins keeping a diary on November 20th and the most of this diary is just talking about the weather like oh today it snowed more oh today snow stopped for a little bit and then snow came and whatever but as time goes on it slowly starts to turn like more emotional and desperate and grim and he starts praying to God and he's talking a lot about religion and it at first it's just started off is like it snowed it didn't snow so now they begin to eat their houses because there's nothing left they start to eat boiled ox hide strips from the hides of the dead oxen which they've already eaten it turns into like literally what they make glue out of at this time is when you boil down these like hide strips over and over and over again it makes this like it's glue and so they literally are eating glue they boil these ox and horse bones over and over and over again to make soup and eventually the bones get so brittle that like they just bite into them and they crumble in their mouths Ugh. because they're so overboiled. The Murphy children eat the oxhide rug that was in front of their fireplace. They literally roasted their rug in the fire and they ate it. By December 16th, they all know that they're going to die because it's been more than a month being trapped in the snow. And Franklin Graves once again decides to form a rescue party. But at this point, people are starving. They're not strong enough to go even if they wanted to go now. So he's like, we're, we have to leave or we're going to die. Like, we're going to watch our children die in front of us or we have to fucking get over that mountain, whatever it takes, even if it fucking kills us. So they get 17 of the strongest members, which include men, women and children, plus Lewis and Salvador, plus Charles Stanton, the guy who had already done this. Remember, he had gone to Fort Sutter to get supplies and come back. And uh, Graves, like, takes all of the kids and he makes, like, a fucking child factory and he's having them make snowshoes out of oxbows and hides. And he's like, we're going to fucking walk out of these mountains with snowshoes this time. It's going to be different. Four of the men who go on this trip are fathers. 
three of them are mothers who literally give their children to the other women at camp like that that's knowing that they might die on this like trek out of these mountains each person had six days of rations of beef they had no extra clothes they had one rifle a blanket each there was a hatchet some pistols and they were all hoping to get to bear valley elizabeth donner wrote later staff in hand they had set forth on snowshoes each carrying a pack containing little save a quilt and light rations for six days journeying one had a rifle ammunition flint and a hatchet for camp use and i want to reiterate that this is not like each person got a rifle each person got a hatchet there's one rifle there's one hatchet there's some pistols and they each have six days of beef and that's it right yeah well and they have no tents they have like no shelter nothing I, I mean, it's just like, what do you even do in that situation, though? Like, I get it. They're they're thinking we have to try to do something because we've gotten to the point that we're eating our shoes and our rugs. Like, yeah. what's left after that? I don't know. I mean, I think we all know what's left. Yeah, after that. That, that's what I'm saying. And I think they probably knew, too. Right. Right. So they're like, all right, we got to send some search party out to try to get this done. And I feel so bad, especially for the guy that went out and then came back. Like he's a he's a fucking real one for yeah. coming back. Right. Because they supplies. wouldn't have even survived. No. That time without him. Charles Stanton. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is when I'm reading this story is some of these characters, as we'll see, it's like, did they know what was going to happen? Like when they all left that Belgian guy out on his own, did some of these people who were more seasoned know like they were like oh, okay you know this might come down to the last person I bring up this book a lot and I'll bring it up again right now it's called Last Man Off and it's about this guy he was a marine biologist a teenager it's his first fucking job out of marine biology school and he's going on this boat with a bunch of fishermen who are gonna go catch Chilean sea bass and it's I think it's like South Pole or North South Pole it's like really fucking cold North Pole something like that it's at one of the poles where it's really fucking yeah. cold right the whole time he's on this boat He's noticing like how such little preparation is going into like their survival at all. Like he's like there was water down at the bottom of the boat that was like always like a foot and a half deep and like the pump jack was like pumping it out all the time and he's like but then it started to get higher and higher and at one point the pump jack broke and like the water at the bottom of the boat was like up to my waist and he's like the fishermen were still just like trying to catch fish and haul them in they didn't want to go like drop off whatever they had caught to like take some of the weight out of the boat because they just wanted to catch as much fish as they could that's like how they made their living right they like went out on this one trip every year but like something fucked up had happened at the beginning of the trip where they couldn't catch as much fish so spoiler alert the fucking ship ends up sinking the marine biologist the kid that's on it is like no one gave a fuck before everyone got off there wasn't enough lifeboats for everyone there wasn't enough suits for everyone because you have to wear these dry suits to keep yourself warm if you go overboard because the water's literally freezing and he's like it like baffles me that nobody helped each other and he's like but I made the decision there that I was going to be the last man off of the boat and I was going to help everyone else the best that I could he was the only person who got the lifeboats out no one else even tried to get them out as the boat was like literally like turned on its side sinking they were all still trying to fish that's so interesting so how did he survive he was the only person who survived the whole thing they found him in uh, one of the lifeboats and the other three people that were in there with him had died from hypothermia 
Oh, wow. Um, and after they died, he said, like, they were all just sitting in these lifeboats. After they died, he would just, like, take the cook, I think, had a wetsuit on or something. One of them had a wetsuit on, and he's like, I used all of my strength. I could barely get it on, and I just, like, half put my body in it. And he's like, I expected to just die there. But then I was so surprised when, like, a ship came and got us because it sunk in the middle of the night, and there was no one nearby. So, like, you're in a tiny little, like, survivor raft. And part of the raft was, like, sinking and broken, too. It was, like, broken. So he didn't even have, like, the beacon on it that was, like, show other boats he was there. So he wrote this book, Last Man Off. You guys all have to read it if you really like survival stories. It's really good. I'm skimming a lot of it, but it's great. And at the end of it, he talks about how it's, like, now been 10 years since this event. Then he's, like, sitting by the ocean, and he pours a beer out for, like, all of the men who died. But he's also, like, fuck them. The only reason we got in that situation is because no one listened to me. Like, no one heeded, like, any sort of preparatory, like, stuff. Because he was a scientist, right? Like, they're super risk adverse. And, like, the fishermen were not at all. They were all just like, oh, I got a knife. Like, I'll be fine in the water. Right. Anyways. That's interesting, though. The point being is I wonder which of these families started sort of preparing for this winter differently than the other families who thought this was going to be temporary, right? Right. It's like like some of these people had to know what was coming. Right. Like the families who got in these cabins versus the Donners who made tents, like they probably were like, okay, that's not good. So this this mission of people who walk out of this place, it's like their last ditch hope or whatever. It comes to be known as the Forlorn Hope Mission. And these people fucking slept outside in the middle of the snow with no tents. It was the low teens to high 20s. There was wind and snow. It was a fucking blizzard falling on them constantly. When the sun came out, it just melted the snow and it made mush, which made it even harder to walk on. They were supposed to only be gone for six days because that's how long Charles Stanton thought it would take them. But they ended up being gone for six weeks. Oh, yeah. So everyone back at camp is like, they died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And everyone at camp is dying. The day before this forlorn hope mission left, the Reed's family servant named Bayless Williams, quote, lost his mind, end quote, and died after just giving up entirely. Apparently, they had been sick for a couple weeks and they, that's all they say. They're just like, they lost their mind. Perhaps hypothermia, you know, perhaps starvation. I don't know. They bury this servant six feet deep in the snow because the ground is too far away. Wow. So then when all the snow melts, there's just going to be on top of the ground? Yeah. That's gnarly. To demonstrate how the camps felt about the forlorn hope leaving, Elizabeth Donner wrote in her account, quote, the number to consume this slender stock of food has been lessened, end quote. So they're like, yeah, I mean, that's a good way to look at it, though. You've got I mean, what is your the thing is, it's hard to judge anybody in any of these situations, even like the annoying pompous guy who keeps bringing up that he fought with Abe Lincoln, even right. though that he may not have kept bringing it up. But yeah. we're just doing that. No, for he him. did. Why would that piece survive history? Yeah, yeah. he brought it up, right? <laughs> So, like, it's hard to judge any of these people because it's like if if you're in a situation where literally you're starved, you're sleep deprived, you're freezing, you're just you're only your lizard brain is activated. Right. right. So it's like, all right, you're leaving. Okay, bye. Now there's less people to consume the food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On this forlorn hope mission, not everyone had snowshoes. There was two boys that didn't have snowshoes. They were 10 years old and 12 years old, and they just turned back immediately because it was just way too challenging. Elizabeth wrote, quote, William Murphy and Charles Berger, who had originally been of the number, gave out before the 
close of the first day and crept back to camp. The others continued under the leadership of the intrepid Eddie and brave Stanton, end quote. Remember, Eddie fucking shot and killed a bear. Charles yeah. Stanton has already done this shit, so they probably think it's great. And we don't have to go into a, a bunch of detail about how snowshoeing fucking sucks. Just yeah. try it. It fucking sucks. And that's with, like, modern snowshoes that are, like, supposed to be really good. Right. I can only imagine how much it sucked when you haven't eaten in days and you've just traveled across the American West and it's snowing and you're also reminded of your PTSD fighting with Abe Lincoln or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and you have like a gangrenous hand and yes. like everyone is just not having a good time at all. Right. A 12-year-old ends up staying with them that he's like, no, I'm not going back because he knows he's going to fucking die. And so the team just fashions him snowshoes on the route from one of the pack saddles that they had. By the third day of the Forlorn Hope mission, almost everyone was snow blind. Snow blindness leads to nausea, headaches, and finally permanent blindness. The fifth day, Charles Stanton, who is one of the guys who had been through this before, and he was like helping to guide them and he was like their saving grace and they all really looked up to him, died. No. It's really sad, his story. So he was, I don't know if this is related, but this is what people say. He was five foot five and he had struggled to keep up. I don't know if that's because he was five foot five, but that's what everyone sort of like insinuates, which I don't get because like, I know a lot of men who are like 5'5", five five and they're very strong. And you would think that it would make it easier to go across the snow, right? Because like you'd have less well, also, weight. Isn't, isn't this the guy that already went and came back? Yeah. Yeah. So his height is irrelevant. He just, the reason why he probably died is because he already has made this journey right. before and was like probably in a rush trying to save everybody the first time he left and came back. Yeah. So he's like super fucking tired. Yeah. Apparently, this is how he died. It's really sad. So they were like every night that they would make a camp, they're like traveling in a group, right? So the person at the front, it was like kind of blazing a trail for the people behind. So if you're the person in the back, all of that snow has sort of already been like crunched down. We sort of talked about this in the Amo Koi Vunin episode. And in the Dietlov Pass incident. Yes, exactly. So um, Charles Stanton has kind of like made his way towards the back because he's super snow blind. He can't see anything. So he's just kind of feeling his way and feeling out the trail. And they would make a camp and then like, an hour later he would show up to the camp and like sit down with them they would all like you know just pretend to eat or whatever and then go to sleep and the next day wake up and do it again and it would be the same thing he'd fall behind and he would come well this particular night he stopped by the fire as they set out and he was like yo you guys just let leave me like I'll be fine I'll catch up and then they make the fire the next night and he like didn't show up and it snowed really hard and then he never showed up and the following spring, they found his remains in that exact same spot by the fire. What? So by the fire that he was like, oh, just leave me. Like, oh, yeah. oh my God, that's so sad. On the sixth day of this trip, Eddie, the guy who killed the bear, realized that his wife had hidden half a pound of bear meat in his backpack because everyone like kind of left all of the food with the people who were back in camp because they didn't the whole reason they're going out is to save their families right, right? so they're going to leave them with as much stuff as they can so but Eddie's wife had like taken half a pound of bear meat which is a lot 
and put it in his backpack without saying anything. And he wow. kept that a secret. So the rest of the group is like starving and confused. They become lost and they're showing signs of mental decay from the hypothermia. And so Lewis and Salvador become these new unofficial guides because Charles Stanton is gone now. And they barely spoke English, but and they didn't really know the trail because it was under snow. Like they're looking around and they're like, well, I think the trail's under here. Yeah, because but- who in their right mind would travel that trail in the snow, right? Yeah. Like, so no one would know what it looked like. Right. So the party comes up to this cliff. If they had climbed this cliff, they would have made it to this road that would have gotten them there three days later. So they would have gotten to where they're going in nine days instead of six. But they decided to go around this cliff to what appeared to be an easier path that appeared to go downhill. But it was actually a 3,000 foot canyon and it was basically a bowl of snow. So they get into the snow bowl and after two more days without food, they know that they have made a wrong turn just based off of what Charles Stanton told them, right? They're like, we know we fucked up somewhere. We just don't know where. And at this point, Patrick Dolan, who he only survives the story with this like little tidbit. And I feel like this is like a rough anecdote to have about yourself. But Patrick Dolan proposes that one of the men should volunteer to die so that they could eat their corpse. You know, he could have said a lot worse things and be remembered. Yeah. You know, so I think he's... No, it gets worse. It oh, gets worse. okay. William Eddy suggests, you know, perhaps we should have a duel with revolvers, but they all shut him down. They're like, no. And they all go on and they're like, okay, maybe we should do a lottery where we like pick like sticks essentially and then someone gets murdered and we eat them as a sacrifice. And William Eddy, who has the bear meat, by the way, so he's like thinking the clearest. He's like, let's just let someone die naturally. Like people have been dying naturally this whole time. Someone's going to die naturally. Let's let that happen. And they're they're like, okay, but no, no, no. How about we do the story? drawing a little bit so Patrick <laughs> Dolan who who created the idea in the first place draws the loser's straw but then no one can fucking kill him they're like we just can't do it okay yeah. that's fine we can't do it let's just keep going wait so the guy that proposed this is the one that drew the short straw yeah god that's so fucking this whole thing is so sad it gets worse right then a blizzard begins and they're forced to stop and camp they light a fire and they huddle together in the snow but the fire can't stay lit and at around 11 p.m. the storm blows out the fire William Eddy like he has some experience with cold weather so he's like everyone we got to sit in a ring like we're all going to be in a tiny circle together and then we're going to put all of our blankets on top of us they lay out a blanket they all get on top of it sit in a little circle and then they take the remaining blankets and put them over and the heat of their breath will like warm them up and then as the snow falls eventually in like a couple hours it'll cover them and sort of make like an igloo in the snow Oh, that's a good idea this camp will later be known as the camp of death no <laughs> Natalia. So they thought that everyone was dying of hunger because everyone feels so hungry they haven't eaten, but they're actually dying of hypothermia. They they just don't know that because they're not cold anymore. When you get hypothermia during the last stages of hypothermia, your blood vessels have opened back up and it makes you super, super warm, which leads to this thing called paradoxical undressing. Do you know what that is? Yes. We talked about it in the DL of Pass incident. That's why I told it to you. You want to tell everyone what it is? Yeah. It's where because in the final stages of hypothermia, like Nat said, your blood vessels open back up. You start to get really, really hot and like uncomfortably hot Yeah. to the point where you feel like you need to start taking off clothes instead 
instead of what you really need to be doing is getting warm, right? Yeah. But you already feel so fucking hot that people just start taking off their clothes and kind of go crazy. That's exactly what starts to happen. People just start dropping now. Right before the fire goes out, they uh, start to lose some people. Antonio, who was one of the Mexican teamsters, dies and they didn't even know he was fucking dead until one of his hands just falls into the fire and begins burning and he doesn't move it. This is a nightmare. This is like if the guy from Saw, if Jigsaw was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to invent a scenario that like is the worst, most horrific thing on earth. Like that's this except for times infinity because it's nature Mm -hmm. being the Jigsaw. That's why that stupid book is called The Indifferent Stars Above because it's just like no one gives a fuck about you. No one cares. At the same camp of death, the next day while they're chopping wood to make fire, the fucking blade flies off of the hatchet and is lost in the snow forever. No. So now they have nothing to make firewood with. And Franklin Graves, who was the leader of the Forlorn Hope mission and all of the rescue missions, lays down in the arms of his daughter, Mary and Sarah, and he dies. No. He tells them that they should eat his body to survive. And as he's dying, Eddie tells Graves, you're dying. And Graves responded, quote, I do not care. End quote and died. I mean, it's kind of metal, but also like (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Right. I do not care. (laughs) Like to get to that point of just being like, I literally, it's not like he's not saying I want to die. Yeah. Like, he's not saying I don't want to date, die. There's nothing he's, to live for. There's, he's just like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> if I die, yeah. right? He's reached a level of, up. like, apathy, like, malnutrition. Like, uh, it's fucking crazy. I I understand that. Humans can only be pushed so far until they're just like, you know what? I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I've, re- I've reached a point. Yeah, but normally that's, like, associated with, like, super severe depression whereas like if you're in a survival situation normally right it's the fight or flight or whatever mode of like your lizard brains like okay i'm in this situation i need to do this i need to do that and so you would think like eventually your lizard brain would just be like i want to die but he's not saying i want to die like he's just like i literally give zero fucks about indifferent stars above yeah yeah he has become the indifferent indifferent star above (gasps) Oh, my God, that's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. That's what if anyone has recently had someone like dear to them, dear to their heart pass. What a great way to honor them by giving them a card that says your loved one who's recently deceased has now become one of the indifferent stars above. Yeah. (laughs) It's Christmas Day, 1846. And this is where Patrick Dolan's story really takes off. Merry Christmas, because Patrick loses his mind in the blanket circle. Jesus. Christmas Day, Patrick Dolan begins to rant in a crazed state. He's just speaking nonsense. No one really knows what he's saying. Uh, Maybe they are too weak to know what he's saying. We don't know. But he strips naked and he runs off naked into the woods in this blanket circle. This phenomenon I think is interesting. It's called hide and die or terminal burrowing. And it's something that happens to hypothermia victims. We think that perhaps it's like one of your like body's last ditch efforts to get to safety. But I think it's kind of fucked up that they're like, oh, hide and die. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's very uh, blunt. Terminal burrowing is like a lot more scientific than hide and die. 
Terminal burrowing sounds gross, though. Yeah, it does. It sounds. I don't like burrowing. Miraculously, though, Patrick Dolan was not done. He returned to the blanket circle, but he died from this injuries a few hours later. So they're in this blanket circle, and it's described as like there's bodies are just sitting around them in the circle, and when someone dies, they just push them out of the circle and make the circle tighter. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, people are losing their minds from hypothermia, and it's two more fucking days until they can get a fire. Finally, a 13-year-old boy, you might remember him, Lemuel Murphy, he finds and catches a mouse while he's out searching for firewood branches, and apparently he just ate the mouse alive. Jeez. And as soon as he eats this mouse, his body goes insane, and he starts biting all of the people in the circle, just yelling, give me my bone, give me my bone, give me my bone, and he dies at 2 a.m., what? This is a 13-year-old boy. What the fuck? That's what part of me wonders if, like, some of these tricksters, like, are fucking stealing from each other, right? Because we know William Eddy had a secret bear me. And oh. so maybe, maybe this 13-year-old boy, Lemuel Murphy, maybe he brought a bone and someone stole it from him or something. Oh. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. Honestly. They, they that... just try to make it out to be like, oh, he's crazy. But, like. But what if he, no, you're totally right. Like, what if. He, in his last effort to stay alive, he's like, I need to eat something. Give me my bone. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, there are three dead bodies at the blanket circle, um, just scattered outside the circle. And on the morning of the 27th, Mr. Eddie blows up a powder horn in an effort to strike a fire under the blankets. His face and his hands get super burned from this. Miss McCutcheon and Miss Foster were also burned in this, but not as seriously as Eddie. Around 4 o'clock p.m., the storm dies away. And finally, Mr. Eddie is able to get out from underneath the blankets. And he's able to move that fire into a large pine tree. Then everyone gets out and... And they lit a fucking dead tree on fire and the flame just went all the way to the top of the tree and burned like all of these dead limbs off the tree. And there's just like giant limbs falling down in the snow on top of these starving people with hypothermia. Oh and they don't eat like some of them were as large as a man's body, they said. But the people were so weak and they were so indifferent that they didn't even try to avoid them. They just like stood there and even though these limbs fell down apparently they didn't hit the people maybe because they had just succumbed they were like if it hits me it hits me and then they were just like okay who cares exactly and then the universe was like oh this isn't fun anymore to fuck these people up because they don't care right and it's like let's give them a little bit more health so then we can fuck with them all the care i would not be surprised wolves began to lurk around no the graves there are of the wolves dead. yes there's been wolves this whole time this turns into the liam neeson story where his plane crashes and then he has to survive in the wilderness with wolves yeah All it right, does actually good. we can just you can just finish that yeah. The wolves begin to lurk around these dead bodies that are outside of this blanket circle from hell, the camp of death. And one pioneer wrote in her diary, quote, Perhaps God sent the wolves to show Miss Murphy and also Miss Graves where to get sustenance for their dependent little ones. Was it culpable or cannibalistic to seek and use the only life-saving means left them? End quote. And I feel like these are all like really rhetorical questions. That the survivors of this, like, wrote in their diaries, like, so anyone else who's reading this would be like, huh, I never thought to ask myself if it was actually cannibalism, but, like, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also, like, the fact that these people kept writing 
coherent sentences is interesting. Like, I feel like if I were dying, twitching on the ground, eating parts of humans, like, while there's a on-fire tree branch on my leg and, like, in this in a blizzard, I would be like, uh... Scrabble dop boop right. Well, they wrote these like after. Oh, okay. Some of them, like Patrick Breen's, was written at the camp, but like all of these, uh, a lot of these are written afterwards. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'd just be like gurgle- gurgling simlish. Like, I, there's no way could have a complete sentence but now i understand this, these are accounts from survivors mostly so the following morning they butcher the dead corpses they remove their heads their hands oh. and their feet and they begin roasting the uh, parts of the body over the fire to eat some of the group had begun to eat the flesh from patrick dolan's body and they they some of them are still like no 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 i'm not resorting to this but some of them are doing it and they're like all just unable to look at each other and it's said that they were just openly like sobbing and crying while they're eating the meat but then even the people who were like no 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 i can't do it once they smelled the roasting of the meat over their fire it was like so appetizing that they started eating and then they opened up the chests of the bodies they got out the livers the kidneys and the heart to eat and they roasted them on sticks oh my over God. the fire they divided themselves up so that they wouldn't eat their relatives, but the, we're not sure exactly like if that happened or not. That's what the survivors said, but who knows? One source notes that Sarah Murphy Foster had hardly begun mourning her brother Lemuel when she realized that the other pioneers were already eating his heart. Oh my God. One of the 12 year old sisters tried to feed some of Patrick Dolan to her brother, but he just died shortly afterwards, anyways, because he was already too weak. But Eddie, who has the secret bear meat, and Louis and Salvador, they refused to cannibalize or eat, which makes me think perhaps they also had some secret stuff going on. Yeah, Louis and Salvador do not trust the white people. Well, they they were for sure like, we've got our own stash. We've been hired here. Like, we don't want to be here. Some people think that they were just enslaved because the fort that they came from like when people describe the guy that owned the fort or whatever and supplied them with these guides they were like he was the best i'm gonna use different words but he was the best native tamer in all of the land oh okay so they might have been uh enslaved enslaved. okay or like indentured servants or something okay all right well i hope they had their own food mary graves recalled later quote and these are her words by the way what to do we do not know Some of those who had children and families wished to go back, but the two Indians said they would go on. I told them to go too, for to go back and hear the cries of hunger from my brothers and sisters was more than I could stand. I would go as far as I could. Let the consequences be what they might, end quote. The morning after Patrick Dolan was cannibalized, the group stripped muscles and organs from the bodies of Antonio, Graves, and Murphy. They dried them to store for four days ahead by roasting them over the fire, and they now had four days of meat that were stored for the trip ahead. After three days rest and nourished by the meat of their companions, they began searching for the trail once more. Eddie's bear meat ration at this point had run out and he had also begun to eat the human flesh, but soon that was gone as well. Around this time, the group began disassembling their snowshoes and started eating the shoes as well. And their clothes were like ripped off their body from all of the traveling. They just started eating their shit. Apparently at this point, they were discussing killing Luis and Salvador for food because they were like not part of the original group, right? right? And they like didn't really... They they, didn't know them. They didn't have an emotional bond with 
them. Yeah, and, you know, the relations between the pioneers and natives at that time weren't that great anyways, so they didn't really see them as, like, humans. According to one source, Eddie warned the two men, and then they left, just, like, without saying anything. Wait, so what happened? Do we get to find out later what happened oh, to them? Oh, we'll, we'll meet them again here in a moment. Oh, Don't okay. worry all about right, them. Right. Don't worry. We'll meet them right back up here in a second. Oh, okay, well, in that case, I'll just stick around and find out. <laughs> at this point, they they descend below the snow line. So now there's like trees and stuff and there might be food, right? Because there's not snow. And they separate into groups to find a deer. But remember, they've chewed their shoes, all of their shit. So their feet are getting like super cut up and fucked up. While they were in the snow, a lot of them got frostbitten feet and their feet were like swollen and split open and bleeding. Now the feet have thawed out and they're walking on sharp mountain rocks barefoot. Mary Graves and Eddie leave to hunt. They are able to kill a deer with a single bullet. Wow. It's said that when they got to the deer, they slit its throat and drank the blood that poured from the throat. So not to waste any of it. Well, it's probably warm. Right? It's like hot chocolate if you yeah, think about it. Yeah. When they got back to camp, Fosdick had died. Uh, Sarah Graves's fiance that she loved. No. And his dead body had already been cut apart <gasps> for food. The group had become somewhat unhinged at this point. Apparently, everyone didn't even mourn the dead. When Sarah like ran into the Fosters and told them that her fiance had died, the Fosters just asked if they could eat him right away. What the fuck? And then they butchered his body and they just carried his torso, his legs, and his arms on their backs back to camp. No. The Fosters ate Fosdick's heart on a stick roasted over the fire. The Fosters are just like on another level. There's this, I don't know if they have this all over the U.S., but in California, there is this establishment called Foster's Freeze that sells. Oh my God, love Foster's Freeze. It sells uh, ice cream and like burgers. And I cannot think of not the Fosters now. You know what I was thinking of? Uh, Foster's beer, that Australian beer. Oh, right. Yeah. That's it. That's (laughs) it. Thank you for the thought. It had now been 25 days and they were still lost. Again, their feet were fucked up because they'd eaten their shoes. So Foster starts talking about murder. He suggests we should kill one of the McCutcheon daughters because who the fuck are they? <laughs> Mention their name like one time. But then he decides that instead he's going to kill the Grave sisters because they're orphans now. So he's really going to be putting them out of their misery. What the fuck? And Eddie says he'll kill Foster if he doesn't fucking drop it. He's like, we're not murdering anyone. Shut the fuck up. Other sources say that Foster even tried to lose one of the girls away from camp so he could murder and eat her and other sources are like no it wasn't that big of a deal but he did he did try to murder what them. the fuck a few more days after Fosdick's body was consumed the party ran into Lewis and Salvador Lewis and Salvador were starving and they hadn't eaten for nine days the guides were about to die anyway so William Foster of, of course gets his wish and he shoots them and the group cannibalizes their organs oh my god William Foster other sources say that they were like doing fine they weren't starving but Foster murdered them anyway and then other sources say that like they actually weren't doing fine and they were about to die but he did murder them anyways so no matter what the situation is Foster killed these people and ate them I mean it sounds like Foster's gone insane yeah or maybe he's like you know maybe that's what it takes to survive the indifferent stars above two days later the forlorn hope group finds a native settlement finally they find this fucking settlement But when they walk into this camp, they're emaciated. They're covered in blood from like eating, you know, like the deer meat and their feet are split open. They're they're barely wearing any clothes. Their ribs are showing. They look scary as fuck. And they have fucking human remains in their backpacks. Wendigo. 
Yeah. So the people who were in this native settlement just fucking ran. They abandoned the settlement because they saw these people walking in and they were terrified. Also, they had guns and stuff with them. So like, what's to keep them from just killing them and eating them? I mean, they looked unhinged and they were unhinged. Yes. The natives believed that they were Wendigos. So they left, according to some sources. Some of the sources say that the natives were so scared of them that they gave them everything they had to eat, which included acorns, grass, and pine nuts, and that they helped them and that they allowed them to rest there. And other sources are like, they were so terrified that these people were going to kill them and eat them that they helped them anyways. Some sources said it's because they're nice. Other sources said it's because they were afraid they would be eaten. And I say, why not both? Porcano Lostos. The Forlorn Hope group is able to eat in the settlement, but they still had to go a little bit further to get to Johnson's ranch so that they could get help. Another blizzard happened. It was so bad that they had to stop every hundred feet and rest on their way to Johnson's ranch. And a combination, I guess, of having rested in the settlement and eaten lowered the adrenaline and their bodies just gave out and they knew they would never make it in time. So once again, Six of the members who were too weak to go on were stayed behind. And William Eddy, who was accompanied by some of the tribe from the settlement, went to Johnson's ranch at the edge of Sacramento Valley. He was able to tell ranchers that there were six people laying in the snow behind him a few miles back, too weak to go on. And the rescue party went and followed his bloody footprints to find the other six survivors of Forlorn Hope. Oh, my God. Of the original 17 of Forlorn Hope, seven survived. But now the entire settlement knew that there were starving people back at Truckee Lake so the rescue missions could begin. Back at the camps, while Forlorn Hope was out to find help, the migrants at Truckee Lake caught and ate mice that strayed into their cabins. And in Alder Creek, where the Donner Party was with the tents, they had already exhausted all of their food. They slaughtered their pack animals. They had cooked their pet dogs. They had gnawed on leftover bones and boiled the animal hide roofs of their cabins into the glue to eat. Soon, they were too weak to leave their beds. It was a day's walk between the Donner's camp at Alder Creek and the other camps at the lake, so communication was rare. But one day, news came to the lake that at Alder Creek, Jacob Donner and three hired men had died already. Elizabeth Donner wrote, Meanwhile, with us in the Sierras, November ended with four days and nights of continuous snow, and December rushed in with a wild, shrieking storm of wind, sleet, and rain, which seized on the 3rd. The weather remained clear and cold until the 9th when Milton Elliott and Noah James came on snowshoes to Donner's camp from the lake cabins to ascertain if their captain was still alive and to report the conditions of the rest of the company. Because remember, Donner's still supposedly the captain of this group. Right. Before morning, another terrific storm came swirling and whistling down our snowy stairway, making fires unsafe, freezing every drop of water about the camp, and shutting us in from the light of heaven. Ten days later, Milton Elliott alone fought his way back to the camp with these tidings. Jacob Donner, Samuel Shoemaker, and Joseph Reinhardt, and James Smith are dead, and the others in low condition. Uncle Jacob, the first to die, was older than my father, and had been in miserable health for years before we left Illinois. He had gained surprisingly on the journey, yet quickly felt the influence of impending fate, foreshadowed by the first storm at camp. His courage failed. Complete prostration followed. My father and mother watched with him during the last night, and the following afternoon helped to lay his body in a cave dug in the mountainside beneath the snow. The snow had scarcely resettled when Samuel Shoemaker's life ebbed away in happy delirium. He imagined himself a boy again in his father's house and thought his mother had built a fire and set before him food of which he was fondest. 
That is heartbreaking. Also at this time, Wolfinger's wife, Doris, the guy, like she was the widowed wife of the guy who was killed by the peyotes in the desert. She was also encamped with the Donners at Alder Creek. And years later, Leanna Donner, who was 12 years old at the time in 1846 when this all went down, she recalled how as Reinhardt died, he confessed to murdering Wolfinger. Elizabeth wrote, But when Joseph Reinhardt's end drew near, his mind wandered, and his whitening lips confessed a part in Mr. Wolfinger's death. And my father, listening, knew not how to comfort that troubled soul. He could not judge whether the self-condemning words were the promptings of a guilty conscience or the ravings of an unbalanced mind. Like a tired child bawling asleep was James Smith's death. And Milton Elliott, who helped to bury the four victims and then carried the distressing report to the lake camp, little knew that he would soon be among those later called to render a final accounting. Yet, it was even so. During the bitterest weather, we little ones were kept in bed, and my place was always in the middle where Francis and Georgia, snuggling up close, gave me of their warmth, and from them I learned many things which I could never have understood nor remembered had they not made them plain. So some of the, I don't know that why that guy confessed to murder. And they're saying like, we don't know why he did either. Like he was, could have just been losing his mind from starvation and hypothermia, or he could have just been like thinking he was about to die and he should confess. They said they didn't know. I mean, it, yeah, it sounds like he was totally out of it. He also could have just felt guilty like, maybe he could have, he felt like he could have done more to help prevent no. the death. No, so they said that him and this other dude that I didn't mention because he wasn't that haunted, like, <laughs> they they uh, went and murdered him and then took his shit and buried him. Yeah, okay. Well, who, Which was not uncommon. Who's to say? Right. Some of the families that were camped out had fared a lot better than others, mainly the people who were in the cabins. They were, like, better off, but not by much. Margaret Reed had managed to save enough food for a Christmas pot of soup for her children. But by January, the Reed children had already started considering eating the ox hides that served as their roof. According to Wikipedia, Margaret Reed, Virginia Reed, Milt Elliott, and the servant girl Eliza Williams attempted to walk out because they didn't know what Forlorn Hope was doing. They thought they were dead. And they reasoned that it was better to try to bring food back than just sit and watch the children starve. They were gone for four days in the snow, but they eventually turned back. At this time, their cabin was now uninhabitable because the oxide roof had been eaten by the children. So the family had to move in with the Breens. The servants went to live with other families. One day, the Graves came by to collect on the debt that was owed by the Reeves, and they took the oxides, which was all that the family had to eat. So remember how before they had given them a, an ox and we're like, when you get to California, give me 25 bucks. Yeah. Well, now they came by and they're like, it's time to collect the debt. And they took the ox hides, which was like everything left that oh the Reeds had. At this point, Miss Reed and her children went to stay with the Breens at Donner Lake. But Milt was left by himself and Milt was dying. And remember, he's the guy who was like traveling between the camps and being like, oh, this person's died. This person's died, whatever. He started dying. And in early February, he went to the reeds and fell asleep and just never woke up. Oh. Patrick Breen made Milt leave the cabin as he was dying because he didn't want him to die in front of the children and upset them. So he like woke him up from his death sleep and was like, go outside. Milt walked like a few feet, like 200 yards out of the cabin and he died there. 
Virginia Reed wrote, quote, When Milt Elliott died, our faithful friend, who seemed so like a brother, my mother and I dragged him up out of the cabin and covered him with snow. Commencing at his feet, I patted the pure white snow down softly until I reached his face. Poor Milt. It was hard to cover that face from sight forever, for with his death, our best friend was gone. End quote. Milt was most likely the first person cannibalized at the Donner Lake camp, but we're not exactly sure. On February 26th, Patrick Breen recorded in his diary, Miss Murphy said here yesterday that she thought she would commence on Milt and eat him. I don't think that she has done so yet. It is distressing. End quote. Elizabeth Donner, who didn't mention any cannibalism in her, like, memoirs later on, and perhaps was a cannibalism denier, wrote, Days passed. No food in camp except an unsavory beef hide. Pinching hunger called for more. Again, John Baptiste and Noah James went forth in anxious search for marks of our buried cattle. They made excavations, then forced their hands poles deep, deeper and deeper into the snow, but in vain efforts. The nail and hook at the points brought up no sign of blood, hair, or hide. It dread unspeakable they returned and said, We shall go mad! We shall die! It is useless to hunt for the cattle, but the dead... If they could be reached, their bodies might keep us alive. No, replied father and mother, speaking for themselves. No, part of the hide still remains, and when it is gone, we will perish if that be the alternative. The fact was, our dead could not have been disturbed, even had the attempt been made, for the many snowfalls of winter were banked. So, uh, after all of this happens, Elizabeth Donner, like, defends her parents and is like, no, 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 they said, like... We wouldn't eat the cannibalized corpses. Uh, da, da, da. But if we believe the stories are true, how long everyone stayed at that lake, and um, then we have to believe that they cannibalized to survive. And the evidence all certainly points to that. So I don't know. I don't know. I like the Donners now that I have heard their background and how obnoxious everyone else in their party was. So I'm going to say that the Donners entered some sort of mystical hibernation mode and mm. did not consume any human flesh mm -hmm. but the breams for sure ate people the or they were hoarding stuff they didn't want anyone else to know oh, about good point right? yeah that's also a possibility and then later they just didn't want to admit to it yeah because like that wouldn't make you look good either like oh we yeah. let those people starve to death William Foster and William Eddy who were survivors of the forlorn hope snowshoe party had already left Johnson's ranch almost immediately after they got there and they told Reed that his family was trapped so Reed at this time who remember he was banished and he was like away from his family he has his like own story his own character arc he like got to johnson's ranch in late october and he was like recovering at the fort um but he was afraid for his family so he begged a colonel to get a team together to go help this trapped family and in return he promised that he would fight in the mexican-american war because uh, right now the mexican-american war was going on and so there like wasn't a lot of like hardened like mountain men to help remember how like you you would see if you were a hardened mountain man who survived like a bear mauling you and served in the army if someone paid you a hundred bucks to go with them to fucking who wherever the fuck you would just go with them right right yeah. so james reed is like okay i'm gonna get some of these people but the problem is, is that they're all serving in the mexican-american war right now because they're being paid to be soldiers so some of the migrants who had already made it out of the pass ahead of the donner party in what is known as the harlan young group got supplies and 30 horses to save the donner party but they had no idea where the party was trapped and when they went to go find them they only found another starving couple who had been 
separated from their group, but it wasn't the Donner Party. It said that like they were like, oh, you're not who we're looking for. And they like left them to no. keep going. And they were like, no, no, fuck, pa. And then when they couldn't find their way through, they like on their way back, they were like, okay, fine. You can come back with us. We'll rescue you. Fuck God. I mean, I kind of get it. I'm going to be honest. Like if my parents were lost in a blizzard and I'm like tromping around in the snow trying right. to find them and they're, I'm just thinking, oh my God, if they're not already dead, they're close to death. And then I just find some random douchebag on the side of the road. I might just be like, look, if it cut, if I can, I'll come back for you. But right now I'm trying to get to my parents. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what happened. Most people assumed that they were already dead. They're like, they've been, you know, your family's gone. Sorry, dude. And Reed is just like, no, no, no. They, we need help. We need help. And he travels all around. And eventually he gets people in San Jose to petition the U.S. Navy to help the Donner Party. And he got two local newspapers to begin writing about the parties, resorting to cannibalism, to foster sympathy for the living who were still trapped. And then once everyone heard that they were like oh wow this is really interesting okay let's rescue them so the first relief is formed on february 18th the seven-man rescue party scaled what is now known as donner pass they were each paid three dollars a day and it took them two weeks to get to the camp these were really skilled mountain men they knew what they were doing it was 20 feet of snow when they arrived and they were unable to see any of the cabins buried in the snow at Truckee lake or donner lake and they just started shouting because they're like, oh, we're here where it says we're supposed to be. And they're like, hello? And they expected everyone was going to be dead. But they were super surprised when Mrs. Murphy came out of a hole in the snow like a fucking gopher. And she just stared at the men like snow blinded, looked at them. And she thought they were angels. And she said, quote, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? End quote. Oh, <laughs> this is so sad. It was so deep that all of their cabins were under snow and they had to dig upwards to get the dead out. Because of that, corpses were just scattered around the camp because they didn't have the energy. Yeah. The relief party sees all of this and they start doling out food in small portions so that the starving people would not overeat and kill themselves because that happened to some of the people. The wet leaky oxide roofs had begun rotting and the smell was really bad. So some of them said they didn't know whether the stench was from the dead or from the decaying roof. 13 people at the camps were dead. Their bodies were very loosely buried near the cabin roofs. And some of the migrants seemed to be delusional and emotionally unstable to the rescuers. The rescue party was very afraid of what they saw. Three of the rescue party did the one day trek to the Donner's camp uh, at Alder Creek and they brought back four gaunt children and three adults. Leanna Donner could barely walk up the hill from Alder Creek to Truckee Lake and she wrote, quote, such pain and misery as I endured that day is beyond description, end quote. At this point, George Donner's arm is so gangrenous from the infection that was cut on his hand that he couldn't move that entire arm and he could barely move his body. I can't believe he's still alive. I know. 23 people were chosen to go with the rescue relief party back, but the other 21 were too weak and they were left at the cabins at Truckee Lake with some food. There were 12 more left at Alder Creek. And the survivors who asked about, oh, what about Forlorn Hope, whatever, the, the rescuers didn't have the heart to tell them that a lot of them had died. So they just were like, oh, they're frostbitten and they couldn't come. Yeah, that's tough. Because um, they were they thought it would be too traumatic. Yeah, I don't know what the right thing to do there is. I would just be like, why are you asking me? You got to talk to someone else about that. Yeah, or just be like, I don't have any news yet. Just be like, huh? What? Who? Who now? I lost my hearing back in the war of 1843. I'm snow deaf. I have no clue. 
It was super difficult to get these survivors out of the past because they were weak and dying. Patty and Tommy Reed were too weak to walk and no one was strong enough to carry them. Margaret Reed had tried to leave with her family, but two of her her kids were too weak. So she had to pick which kids got to go to this rescue mission and which were going to stay. She chose her two strongest children, but she left her two frailest children to be taken back to Truckee Lake without any parents. And she made the rescuer swear on his honor as a Freemason that he would return her children. Her daughter told her, well, mother, if you never see me again, do the best you can. Oh, my God. Upon returning to the lake, the Breens, which were the Breens. Oh, my God. Don't get me started on them. They refused to allow these weakened survivors back into their cabin. Dude, fuck the fuck them. It was only after a rescuer was like, OK, here's more food for all of you that they like allowed these starving kids to come into their cabin begrudgingly, it said. The rescue party had like left these cash stations of food like along their way so they wouldn't have to carry all their shit through the pass. But as they were headed back, they noticed that they had been broken into by animals, which left the rescue party without food for four days. Because of this, they were already starving. Now they're climbing a mountain starving. John Denton slipped into a coma and died. Ada Kesseberg, who was Kesseberg's daughter, died soon afterwards. And apparently her mother was inconsolable. She refused to let the body go of the little child. One of the men wrote, quote, the child's spirit had gone to heaven, but her body to the wolves, end quote. After uh, several days of traveling, the rescuers are like, uh, they think that the children are not going to survive without more food. Some of the kids had started eating the buckskin fringe from the rescuer's pants and they ate the shoelaces of a different rescuer. He just fucking woke up and was like, where's my shoelaces? And sees like a kid ate it. That is so terrifying. Just like a feral child eating your clothing. Yes. Finally, they got over the pass and they run into the next rescue party on their way, which was led by James Reed back from the Mexican-American War. He had managed to raise $1,000 for the rescue attempt and he had gotten the Navy to support him. And when Margaret Reed is coming from this relief party and she sees her husband, she just starts bawling. Like she sinks into the snow. She's overwhelmed. She's like thought she would never see him again. And she tells him, hey, we still have other children at the camp. Like, I had to leave some behind. And so Reed just keeps going. He's like, I have to save my family. Finally, the rescue group makes it to Bear Valley, but they're so deranged that William Hook, Jacob Donner's stepson, breaks into the food stores and fatally gorges himself. They continue on to Sutter's Fort, where Virginia Reed wrote, quote, I really thought I had stepped over into paradise, end quote. Weirdly enough, she wrote that one of the men, like there was a young man that was at Sutter's Fort there, asked her to marry him even though she was 13 years old and recovering from starvation and and she was amused by this she was like oh i guess i've still got it but she turned him down that man that i'm worried for that man because there's like uh, so there's no women anywhere yes so he just exactly 13 year old girl that's emaciated covered in deer blood and is like, like thank god you've survived yeah my, my wife, wife. <laughs> yeah um yeah there was not there was like a lack of brides in california so something paranormal that happened is that a nearby settler in california had begun to have distressing dreams of starving pioneers in the snow uh his name was george c yount people say that he had probably heard about the donner party but nonetheless the legend 
alleges that he had these terrible dreams that motivated him to go find the Donner Party, and he was able to raise $500 to send out another rescue party to get the rest of the pioneers at the lake. By the time the second relief reaches the camp, the one led by uh, James Reed, on March 1st, Reed is reunited with his daughter Patty and his very weak son Tommy, and he sees that the Breen cabin and the occupants had done pretty well, but the Murphy cabin and the Donners at Alder Creek tent, quote, passed the limits of description and almost imagination, end quote. According to Wikipedia, Lavina Murphy was caring for her eight-year-old son, Simon, and two children of William, Eddie, and Foster. She had deteriorated mentally and was blind. The children were listless, and they hadn't been cleaned in days. Louis Kesseberg had moved into the cabin, and he could barely move due to an injured leg. He, I guess, had, like, stepped on a branch earlier that was, like, hurt him. I don't know the story there. Supposedly, there was gnawed human bones thrown around the cabin next to clumps of human skin. Scalps. Oh my god. The children had eaten the dead. A survivor wrote that the children looked more like demons than children. And nobody knows for sure what went down. The paper said one thing, the people said another. Some were crazy, others were too shocked to speak. Also, the parties were separated by the cabins, so the other cabins were like, no, not us. We never thought of that. But it, them, yeah. Yeah, I could see the brains just being like, we never ate right. anyone, and we were always a delight. God fared on us very well because we were good people. Yeah. No one at Truckee Lake had died between the first and the second rescue party, but several accounts exist about what the rescuers found at Alder Creek. At the Alder Creek party, two rescuers approach and they said that they saw a survivor carrying a human leg. They shouted out to him and they witnessed him throw the leg into a hole in the snow that contained the dismembered body of Jacob Donner. Inside the tent, Elizabeth Donner refused to eat, but she had been feeding her children their father's organs. According to the sources, Jacob Donner had given up early on and had just laid in bed and died as soon as the relief party left. And George Donner had cried as he watched the kids eat his brother. The rescuers discovered three other bodies had already been consumed. Tamsin Donner was okay, but George Donner was sick with that gangrene's whatever shit that had traveled to his shoulder, and he was not doing well. The second relief was able to take 17 people from the camp, and they were all children aside from three adults. The Breen and the Gray family had totally left, but the remaining people were too weak. There were only five people at Truckee Lake. Kesseberg, Miss Murphy and her son Simon, and the young Eddie and Foster children. Tamsin Donner had elected to stay with her sick husband and wait for the third party, and she kept her three daughters with her. So Tamsin Donner could have left, but she's yeah. like, no, I'm not leaving my husband, and she keeps her three daughters there. But it's almost saved her life, because as this second relief starts walking back to uh, essentially Sutter's Fort, they decide to make their camp in this horrible spot. The walk back is terrible and hard, obviously, so Reed sends two men ahead to retrieve the first cache of food, but there was a blizzard that kept them from returning back, so they had no choice but to make a camp, and again, they don't have any food. It's so cold that one of the men at the camp didn't know 
noticed when the fire burned through four of his shirts down to his skin. And the fire pit kept sinking down until it was 10 feet below the snow burrowed. So you, the fire, because it's warm, just keeps sinking down in the snow and the snow keeps building. So you just basically have a hole with right. people in it and a fire. Mary Donner's feet were so badly burned because they were frostbitten that she didn't realize they were on the fire while she slept and burned her. After the storm, the Breen and Graves families were too starved, apathetic, and exhausted to keep going. So the party left without them or they would suffer the same fate. The site where the Breen's and the Graves had been left at that like whole camp is known as Starved Camp. And it's now where the ski resort called the Sugar Bowl is. Are you joking? Apparently it's owned by Walt Disney. I don't know, whatever. Walt Disney would. He would be like, you know what? I sense an evil presence here. Let me buy it and attract the children to, to have a time. During this blizzard at Starved Camp, Elizabeth Graves died first. She left her five-year-old son, Franklin, behind an orphan. They decide that Reed should go ahead and get more help because now they're basically trapped at this campfire and after Reed goes and Elizabeth died, there's now only one adult left behind with these 14 kids. After the first night, Mary Donner who was seven years old at the time was just like, why don't we eat the two bodies that are already here? Because she had already eaten her uncle, Jacob Donner remember? Right. And Margaret Breen was like, no! But she's determined to keep her family alive. At this time, the weekend five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death. By the time that the rescuers got to camp, the kids had already eaten Elizabeth Graves down to the bones. They ate her heart, liver, and breasts. They had also eaten five-year-old Isaac Donner. Unbeknownst to nine-year-old Nancy Graves, she had eaten her own mom, Elizabeth Graves. Foster and Eddie were desperate to save their own children, so they persuaded four men with begging and money to go to Truckee Lake with them. And on their ways to the cabins, they passed the survivors that starved camp, huddled around a fire that had sunken into the pit in what was basically like a scary-ass, like, like butchered bodies everywhere. And when they found that the hole was filled with, quote, flesh-eating children, end quote, they considered just leaving them there to die. But three of the men from the rescue party were like, no, we're not going to leave them there to die. We have to save them. And at that point, the relief party split with uh, William Foster and Eddie going to save their family and the others going to save children and possibly whatever survivors are left. So each of the rescuers takes a child from starving camp and they start heading back to Bear Valley. But there's still like nine kids left behind. And John Stark, who's a fucking hero, refuses to leave the other kids. So he takes all remaining nine kids by himself on his back. And he also carried all the food supplies and he assisted everyone getting back to safety. He would pick up like two kids at a time, walk a few feet, set them down, go back, pick up the other two, walk a few feet. Yes, because they couldn't walk back to Johnson's ranch. And John Stark was like trying to make the kids feel better about it. And he was making jokes with them. And he was like, oh, it's so easy to carry you because you're so starved. John Stark got so much pussy when he told that story later. A children's saver? Yes. Yes. Many attempts were made to save the children that were left back at camp because they were separated from their parents and many attempts were made to bribe others. There was essentially no camaraderie between the families. It was really everyone to themselves. To demonstrate this, according to Wikipedia, quote, three members of the relief party stayed to help those remaining at camps. Charles Stone at Truckee Lake, Charles Cady and Nicholas Clark at Alder Creek. 
While Clark was out hunting, Stone was like, hell no, we cannot stay here. We will die. And he traveled to Alder Creek to make plans with Katie to return to California. According to Stewart, Tamsin Donner arranged for them to take her daughters, Eliza, Georgia, and Francis with them for $500 in cash. And Stone and Katie just took the three girls to Truckee Lake, but they left them in a cabin with Kesseberg and Lavina Murphy, and then they just went to Bear Valley alone with the money. Katie fucking douchebags. Katie recalled later that after two days on the trail, they noted and they passed starved camp, but they didn't stop to help anyway, and they just passed everyone on their way back to Bear Valley. Several days later at the Alder Creek camp, Clark and Trudeau agreed to leave for California together, and they reached Truckee Lake only to discover that the Donner girls were still alive. They returned to Alder Creek to inform Tanzan Donners that her daughters were still at the lake. Because Tamsin Donner had been like, take my children. And she thought she had like sent them off with these rescuers. And then later people find them at the other cabins and they come to go tell her, oh, they're they're, they're just at the other cabins. They fucked you. What a fucking nightmare to be experiencing. Like she thinks that her kids are probably safe now. And then to find out that they're they've just been abandoned back at square one. Yeah, this is the third relief. And this is really hard for me to talk about. I cried a lot when I was reading this. But at one point, you your body can only take so much. And I soon became indifferent to like the stars above. I only hope that in telling the story, we can honor these brave people who suffered for us to live better lives. When Foster and Eddie finally got to Truckee Lake on March 14th, their children were already dead and their bodies had been mutilated. Apparently, one night, Kesseberg had taken baby George Foster, who was only one years old, into his bed. And in the morning, the child was dead. It's unclear if he smothered him or the child died naturally or if he had taken him into his bed to warm him in a last effort to keep him alive. But either way, he died and Kesseberg hung his body on the wall and ate him. Kesseberg told Eddie that he had eaten the remains of Eddie's son and Eddie swore to murder murder Kesseberg if they ever met in California and he just leaves him there to die or be rescued by the next party. He's like, fuck that. Some sources say that perhaps Kesseberg refused to leave and that he was just losing his mind. Apparently he had stepped on a sharp branch earlier on the trail and he hadn't been able to walk much after the camp. So maybe the cabin fever caught up. I don't know. George Donner and one of Jacob Donner's children were still alive at Alder Creek. And they were informed that this was the last relief party for a while and that they should leave or they were going to starve to death. Tamsin Donner could have walked out with the relief party and her children, but she chose to stay with her husband, George Donner, who was definitely going to die at this time. I think she just didn't want him to die alone or she couldn't fathom living this whole thing afterwards without him. Right. You know, Foster and Eddie and the rest leave with the Donner girls, young Simon Murphy, Trudeau and Clark. And Lavina Murphy was too weak to leave. Kesseberg, the was left behind plus the Donner adults that meant that four people were left there to die according to Wikipedia two more relief parties were mustered to evacuate any adult who might still be alive but both turned back before getting to Bear Valley and no further attempts were made the fourth relief is the salvage party because at this point they believe everyone's dead it's just basically people who want to go get all their shit because these people had traveled from their homes towards California with everything they owned and some of them had even hidden like their life's fortune in their wagons and buried it 
it. So like they wanted to go find it. On April 10th, a month since the third relief had left Truckee Lake, a salvage party was formed to get the loot left behind by the Donners. They left April 13th. Those items were supposedly going to be sold to support the orphaned Donner children and the relief party didn't expect to find anyone alive. So they were all like, we're going on this thing because we have to support the Donner children with the gold and the trinkets and the jewelries and the fancy things. We have to find them to support the children. According to these rescuers, the salvage party found mutilated corpses all over the lake camp. Hands, feet, heads just thrown around like confetti. One rescuer was at the second relief party, and they said that when they were there before, they had seen bodies, but they weren't cut up. They were whole bodies. This looked like a butchering, a slaughterhouse. When they got to Alder Creek, they found all of the tents empty except for the body of George Donner, but it wasn't his body. It was just his head and it was empty. The brains were simmering in a nearby pot, still fresh. Some sources say it was just his body, but either way, they say George Donner was dead and they guess he had died only days earlier. On their way back to Truckee Lake, after having looked around Alder Creek for salvage, they cross back through the camp where the cabins are and they find Kesseberg, alive and alone. It was very suspicious. They question Kesseberg and he confesses that he's the last survivor and that he had eaten everyone to survive, but he denied any foul play or murder. He said that Miss Murphy had died a week after the third relief. And then weeks later, Tamsin Donner had arrived at his cabin because her husband had died. She was super upset. She had tried to make it over the past, but she was soaking wet because she had fallen in a creek. And and Kesselberg was like, no, no, no. Here's a blanket. Put it around you. Stay warm. Leave in the morning. But she died during the night. Uh-huh. And coincidentally, her last wish was that Kesselberg live long enough to take the remaining silver to her family. Oh according God, to Kesseberg. Kesseberg. The rescuer also noted that for some reason, Kesseberg made, uh, I don't know why, but Kesseberg made sure to say that Tamsin Donner's was the best flesh he had ever tasted. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> why? This man's lost his shit. The salvage party like didn't believe any of this shit. They thought Kesseberg was lying and they found a pot full of human flesh in the cabin along with George Donner's pistols jewelry and $250 in gold. They all threatened to hang Kesseberg and they even put a noose around his neck and started choking him unless he would tell them where the rest of the loot was. Finally, Kesseberg confessed that he had hidden the remaining $273 of the Donner's money, but only because Tamson said that it could benefit her children one day. They're like, whatever, fuck you, dude. We don't give a shit. They also know that he has more money that he's hiding from them. So he's like, look, I'll pay you guys to help get me back. Also, don't kill me. Uh, And they're like, okay, fine. And so he follows behind them as they lead back. But they're basically, he just paid them so that they wouldn't kill him. And he's kind of like trailing behind them as they walk back. Kesseberg ate more human flesh than anyone else. And he was also the last survivor of the Donner Party. He was healthy enough to walk out of there. Dude. So the survivors, all five of George Donner's kids survived. And it was most likely at the sacrifice of Tamsin and George themselves. Only three children out of the eight of Jacob Donner's children survived. And both parents died. The Reeds survived totally, despite having lost everything on the trail. That's why I think it's a little suspicious. Yeah. The Breens also survived totally, but they wouldn't have if John Stark didn't carry the kids out of starvation camp. From the Graves family, nine of 13 survived. 
from the Murphys, seven of 12 survived. But the Eddy family was totally lost other than William Eddy, who had survived the forlorn hope and returned in the third relief. I think his story is the saddest because he's the one who got out, organized the relief, and he didn't get any of his kids out or his family. That sucks. In 1848, Eddie remarried and he married someone named Miss P. Alfred, but they divorced in 1854 after having two kids. In 1856, Eddie married Miss A.H. Pardee and he died in 1859. The response to this was like uh, pretty wild. Several newspapers, including some in California, wrote about the cannibalism in like really graphic, exaggerated detail about like the eating of toddlers and babies and all of this stuff. And all of them are like, Kesselberg left, like killed everyone and he was a savage, scary, crazy man and blah, blah, blah. And Kassenberg uh, files for a defamation case against Ned Coffeemeyer, who is one of the rescuers who, like, published these stories. And he's like, the rumors spread by the fourth relief party that I killed Miss Donner for her money are just false. And the court sides with Kesselberg, but they give him only $1 in damages. <laughs> so according to legend, Kesselberg opens up a boarding house in Sacramento. In George McKinstry's 1851 letter to Captain Kern, he wrote, quote, Old Kesselberg, the man-eater, has made a fortune and is now keeping a restaurant in Sacramento City. I would like to board there. I wouldn't, end quote. Kesselberg later opened a brewery and C.F. McLashen, McLashen reported that the Kesselbergs had eight children in California. He said none of them lived past 30 years of age. And he wrote that Kesselberg told him that his two daughters were idiots. However, what? yeah, I don't know. However, one Kesselberg family member came out and was like, that's a lie. And they said that the daughters, Bertha and Amelia, married and had children. And Bertha lived to be 90 years old in Sacramento. Historian Charles McGlashan amassed enough material to indict Kesselberg for the murder of Tamsin Donner. But after interviewing him, he concluded that no murder had occurred. Eliza Donner, she was like an orphan who was taken in later also believed Kesselberg to be innocent. But as Kesselberg got older, he did not venture outside because everyone hated him. He was threatened, and he told the historian McGlashan, quote, I often think that the Almighty has singled me out among all men on the face of the earth in order to see how much hardship, suffering, and misery a human being can bear, end quote. He died in 1895. I mean, that's pretty gnarly. I think Like I said earlier, it's hard to judge any of these people because, thank God, we've never been in that position before. But it is really suspicious that, like, the story of the little boy that he just, like, took into his bed. The baby? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, hung him up. Hung his body up. They and said he, they hung him like a suckling pig. But that's like, who knows? Some people are like, oh, well, that's just them being racist because he was like an immigrant and he was the last survivor. And then other people were like, he was an immigrant and he was the last survivor and he was also a dick. Yeah. And he, he also, there's a reason why he was the last to survive and it's because he was vicious. Right. Yeah. So it's too, who knows? None of us were there. But yeah, pretty wild. I mean, at that point, like, do you even want to survive? It's just pretty wild that he was able to walk out because yeah. even. Even the other people that were occasionally eating humans, it sounds like they were like super distraught and like physically incapable of doing much. He was the Wendango. 
some of the printed accounts, they describe the members of the Donner Party as heroes and they describe like California as like this paradise worthy place. You have to sacrifice to get there. Some of the survivors capitalized on the fame from the event. The diaries of Hiram Miller and James F. Reed are controversial because Martha Reed donated them to Sutter's Fort Historical Museum in 1945. And before that, no one had even known of it. So it was like almost 100 years later. The Graves sisters had PTSD. Nancy Graves couldn't even talk about the incident because she thought only of eating her mother and burst into tears. And she refused to give any interviews to historians. I don't blame her. The other Graves sisters said that she couldn't cry anymore after being rescued because she couldn't forget what had happened. One of the Reeds couldn't handle Christmas time because she thought only of the Christmas that they had had at Donner Lake, which the lake itself was renamed Truckee Lake to Donner Lake as well. Lansford Hastings, the guy who made the shortcut, got death threats from people who crossed the trail with him before the Donners. Remember how he was like going ahead? They were like, how could you let people go through that when you had gone through that and you knew that what would happen? Yeah. Yeah. And they said like he just said he was really sorry and that he meant well. Okay. Well, I mean, even if he meant well, he it sounds like from what you told me, he was like trying to do this thing so that he could gain more notoriety and power. Like he didn't really care about like whether or not people made it through the area alive he just wanted people to be like oh that's mr what's his name hessinger the guy's name lansford hastings hastings yeah the guy that wrote the immigrant's guide yeah yeah and then you said that he came up with this alternate route because he was like oh i want more white people to come out here to like help me like (sighs) take over and be president of california yeah and he had like deals with like the people at fort bridger like all these mountain men like they all had like deals with everyone that's how they survived is because they had like alliances and help right they were all schemers schemers Sarah Graves remarried, but her second husband was lynched as a mule thief. The Reeds settled in San Jose, and two of the Donner children lived with them. Reed did okay because he was in California for the gold rush, of course, and he just, like, scammed his way and, like, went on and was fine. Virginia Reed became a Catholic because she promised that she would convert when she saw Patrick Breen praying in the cabin that winter. That was, like, one of those situations where you're like, God, if you help me through this, I promise I will, like, do what you want. And she, like, did it. Good for her. The Murphy survivors lived in Marysville, California, which was named after Mary Murphy because when the daughter was rescued by the First Relief, just three months after her rescue, she married William Johnson, who was the co-owner of Johnson's ranch. Some reports said that he was a dick and treated her badly, so she divorced him. And then afterwards, she married another guy named Charles Covelat, And Covalot founded a town on his land and he called it Marysville. So Marysville, California is named after her. The Breens made their way to San Juan Bautista, California, where they operated an inn and they became the anonymous subjects of a story by J. Ross Brown about his severe discomfort upon learning that he was staying with cannibals. This uh, article was printed in Harper's Magazine in 1862. George and Tamson's Donner's remaining children were taken in by an elder couple near Sutter's Fort. Eliza was three years old during the winter, and she was the youngest of the Donner children. Even so, she published an account of the Donner Party in 1911 that was based on printed accounts and those of her sisters. She denied all of the cannibalism, but we think it's impossible to survive without it. Yeah, it'd be pretty tough unless you had a secret stash. Mary Graves' next husband, because her love, Jay Fosdick, had died on the Forlorn Hope mission and was eaten, her next husband was murdered. She cooked the killer's food while he was in prison waiting to be hung so he wouldn't starve. What? That is a weird plot twist character arc. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, she's just like didn't want anyone to suffer. I don't know. Mary's brother, William, had several different occupations, a diverse lifestyle, and his nieces thought that he was, quote, eccentric and irascible, end quote. And I looked that up. It means easily angered. A diverse lifestyle? Yeah, I don't is know. That, is that like... Was he gay? Yeah. I don't know. All right. Or maybe he was just... I don't know. What is a diverse it's... lifestyle? Like, he lived in a tree? Like, I don't... It's <laughs> <laughs> like... a good question. I don't know. All right. Well, sounds good. But he was easily angered. We well, know that. Don't ask a... him about it. Yeah, yeah. Eddie remarried and he started a family in California. And he tried to murder Louis Kesseberg. He tried to make good on his thing because Kesseberg ate his fucking child. And did he do it? But James Reed and Edwin Bryant told him not to. And a year later, Eddie recalled his experiences to Jay Quinn Thornton, who wrote the earliest account of the episode. So he didn't get to murder him. He didn't get to murder him, but he basically was like the first person to tell what had happened and have it be like, like written in. All right. Well, I would have liked for him to have gotten revenge, but... That's me fine. too me too like there, this story is just so fucking sad that i need somebody to take my anger out on and i would like if there was some sort of redemption story where like someone got back at someone you there, know? the redemption is is that all of these people sacrificed to get to california and they knew that they might die to get there right but they all wanted their ancestors they all wanted their children to have better lives and the ones who survived and got out they all did super well they have like streets named after them in san jose they like you know one of them marries like they all like marry into money they all did really really well so that's sort of the saving grace is that like the people who died in vain died so that their families could like have a better life and they definitely did well good for them in late june of 1847 members of the mormon battalion buried the human remains and they burned the cabins there were a few people who would venture out over that pass in the next few years the people who would go to take the trail that they had taken they found bones and other artifacts and they found the cabin that was used by the reed and the graves families in 1891 they even found a cache of money that was buried beneath the lake it was probably stored by mrs graves who did it when she left with the second relief so she could return for it later okay there's not many theories because i feel like it's just whatever but the ones i'm going to talk about so some people say that like oh there's conflicting evidence about the cannibalization because um they went and they like looked and they found the like artifacts from these camps but they couldn't find bones that were like belong to humans but that doesn't like the absence of finding human bones does not mean that there wasn't cannibalism there and that like uh that's basically it wait so so it's up for debate whether or not there were any human bones found (sighs) Okay, so 20 years ago, there was like archaeological findings at Alder Creek, and they found a lot of artifacts that had belonged to the Donner Party, including a chalkboard slate that the children might have drawn on, pieces of a plate, and evidence of a campfire, ammunition, and several dead animal carcasses and bones. But they were like, it proved inconclusive for evidence of cannibalism. However, none of the bones tested at Alder Creek campfire could be identified with certainty as human. They just said, wait, we don't, this is a mammal, but we're not sure. Yeah. Okay. That said, according to archaeologists, only cooked bones would be preserved. And if the party didn't cook the bones, if they only ate the flesh and prepared the organs, then there wouldn't be evidence anyways. That is a weird fact I did not know I would ever learn. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're ever trying to get away with murder, don't cook the bones. All right. So where does the cannibalism accounts come from? Well, Margaret Breen gave an interview to Eliza Farnham for her book she wrote in 1856 about the ordeal. And Eliza's book focuses on what happened to the graves and the Breen 
Marines after Reed and the 2nd Relief Party left them at the snow at Starved Camp. According to Farnham, seven-year-old Mary Donner encouraged the group to cannibalize Isaac Donner, Franklin Graves Jr., and Elizabeth Graves as the Donners had already begun cannibalizing at Alder Creek, including Mary's own father, Jacob. Margaret Breen was adamant that she and her family did not cannibalize the dead, but the Breen family had been without food for nine days, so skeptics of the theory believe that it's not possible for the Breens to have survived without flesh. However, perhaps, like I said, they were hiding food from everyone else. I would not have put it past them because they wouldn't even take in the children. Yeah, so like why, but yeah, why Why didn't they want to take in the children? The only explanation in my mind is either, well, unless they're just assholes. They didn't assholes, want them to see it. But if they didn't want anyone to know what yeah. they were doing in there. And that yeah. can go one of two ways. Maybe they were cannibalizing people and they knew like, hey, later we're going to de- deny all this. Or maybe they had their own cache of food and they were like, we don't want to fucking share it with anyone. And we also don't want word to spread because then we're going to have a mutiny of like yeah. crazed, emaciated cannibals yeah. on our hands. Yeah. I, I second that. Weirdly enough, according to an account by H.A.'s Wise in 1847, Jean-Baptiste Trudeau spoke in lurid detail of eating Jacob Donner. And he also said that he had eaten a baby raw. Um, what? Some people think that he was just like trying to like, he was young, so he was just trying to like get the people going. I don't right. know. Like, I mean, that's a weird one. to, But also, okay. All right. Hold on. Devil's advocate. Wise, hold on. Why said Trudeau told him, quote, I eat baby raw, stewed some of Jake and roasted his head. Not good meat. Tastes like sheep with the rot, but sir, very hungry, eat anything. End quote. Um, first of all, great phrasing. Love the broken English that he chose because it just makes it even more unhinged. But also, if what if like someone was just bugging him so much, like, tell me about the children you ate. Right. I know you ate the children. And then he's like, ate child raw. Eat right. it raw. Yum, yum. Do good. Not great. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just telling them to shut the fuck up. Right. I, I totally, I totally, totally, totally agreed. Also, rescuers of the final relief, they claim that they tried to give Kesseberg food, but Kesseberg was like, no, I only eat people now. So, like, I don't know <laughs> if these are true. Because then years later, Trudeau met uh, Eliza Donner who had been writing that shit, and he denied cannibalizing anyone. And he reiterated that in a different interview when he was older in 1891, when he was 60 years old. The historians, like, didn't really know what to make of this. So they just think that um, that he was just trying to be cool, but I don't know. I'm just imagining no one actually ate anybody except for Kessaber. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. The second thing, uh, this one, okay, you guys, this one, I didn't really go into much because I feel like it has, like, some problematic features of it, but there is a conspiracy about the Masonic Order, but I'm just telling you what I read. Okay. Some people think that the Masonic Order was, like, part of this, hold on, let me read this. I found this unhinged website (laughs) that I cannot even repeat half of what I read on there, but it was, like we didn't land on the moon you know the cia like (laughs) killed george floyd like it was like all a bunch of stuff okay so it was like went deep one of the things that they were talking about was this like mormon freemason connection okay so according to the unexpected cosmology.com slash i do not believe in the 1849 california gold rush what they don't believe in the gold rush so he this person is saying that essentially um the 
How can you be a gold rush denier? And how do I join that club? I want a shirt that says certified gold rush denier. I was so intrigued just like you. So, okay, here's the article. See, the Mexican-American War ended on February 3rd, 1848. And quite suddenly, a Freemason named James W. Marshall discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California. You will tell me Marshall discovered gold in them hills before the war came to an end? January 24th, 1848, to be precise. I call it convenient. We're told Marshall discovered gold on January 24th, 10 days before the war was formally won, but it would not be confirmed until March 1848 by Freemason Samuel Brannan, a newspaper man and high-ranking Mormon. Freemason and Mormon. That's two birds with one stone. But not just any Mormon. After the death of Joseph Smith in 1844, The Mormons decided to relocate their center from Illinois to California, which at the time, mind you, was beyond the United States borders. This was nothing short of an exodus. With J. Smith gone, Brandon found himself the highest ranking religious leader in New York. In order to lead their plight into the promised land, Brandon set sail for California upon the Brooklyn in January of 1846, bringing along an antiquated printing press and a complete flour mill. The Mexican-American War started on April 25th, 1846, three months before his arrival in Yerba Buena on July 31st, 1846. Something was indeed happening. The Mormons wanted California. The United States government wanted California. Let's just assume for the movement, and we are indeed correct in doing so, that Freemasonry wanted California. Already there was a gold rush out to California, and it wasn't for gold. Spooks were being put in place. So he's basically saying that the gold the gold is propaganda, that there actually wasn't gold. It was just like something to get people to go out to California. And um, that like the Freemasons and the Mormons are like connected and they're starting a new world or- order in California under the, the like guise of there being a gold rush. So the people that found gold during the gold rush, was it just an accident? Like, was it by chance? Does does he say? Or does he just ignore that and say there was no gold rush? He goes into, like, a lot of detail. Honestly, you guys can go skim that site. I just saw several problematic things, and I was like, okay, I'm not even going to, like, perpetuate this stuff because I don't know what it leads to because there have been several times where I found articles that were interesting and then come to find out later that they was actually problematic. So I tread with caution. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think I have a new favorite conspiracy theory. The gold rush isn't real? Yeah, like birds aren't real, but the gold rush isn't real. I just want a shirt that says that. Yeah. Yeah, and then the last one is Wendango's. That's like all you need to know. <laughs> Sorry, you're <laughs> like, you're just, you look so pissed off that you even had to talk about this gold rush isn't real theory. And then now. Bro, this, you gotta understand how long the story goes on for. And it goes in both directions. I could have talked a thousand times more about the stupid Oregon Trail. And I could have talked a thousand times more about the history of California that happens after this. Because I went down all every rabbit hole and I brought you guys the most interesting information. It was very interesting. But I am very angry that I've had to talk for this long. <laughs> no, it was very interesting. So wait, can I, I don't fully understand the gold rush isn't real still. So... Th- Does that mean that the fact that Freemasons were in the Donner Party leads that man to believe that the Donner Party was a planned event where people would eat people to bring about the New World Order? Um, no. He 
he believes that the Donner Party actually didn't cannibalize each other and that um, they were used as like this uh, story that was like, oh, yeah, like it's just part of what goes into getting to California and that the families that were Freemasons made it out alive and fine, like Reed's family and some of the others. And that the ones who didn't survive weren't Freemasons and that like them cannibalizing has just like it's like something that I don't know the New World Order has like put in place to like rile the people up. That's what I love about these unhinged conspiracy theories is that they never quite make sense. But people fucking love them like people die for them. And it's like but why what like you ask people to explain a little bit more and it's like they can't. (sighs) Okay. Let me just read, like, a piece of this. North America may, in fact, be the promised land of Israel. Holy Land hoax, which is a link you can click on. It all ties into Tartaria and the mud flood theory. Likewise, I'm not saying that nobody found gold in California. It only seems natural if enough people staked a claim and started digging that somebody would. It's stuff like this that makes the COVID-1984 hoax believable. People die of influenza every year, rig the numbers, and force people all over the world to wear their re-education masks as part of Freemason ceremony. All right, well... You know, there was like so many things in there that needed to be explained more. But like it basically like you get you get the idea. All right. What All this right. person's about. So he, so in this theory, the fact that the Freemason families were the only ones that survived is not a coincidence. Right. It is a conspiracy, but I can't take it to the next step. So I think that crazy lady from uh, the Manacled Mormon episode sort of touched on this, where she was saying that, like, the Mormons were came in droves and like they were like basically their own like military and like whatever like under the guise of a religion and that they were okay. like trying to infiltrate the state and all this remember she, the crazy lady was ranting on vaguely yeah i feel like she probably reads this probably yeah oh for sure for sure it also reminds me a little bit of the jameson family episode where they had written down that steve quayle website that was right. just like yeah get take all your money buy gold yeah. put it in the ocean there's a tornado coming and COVID-19's in the tornado. Like, it was just, like, right. pure insanity. All right. Well, I mean, I think I, I could get on board with, like, it's weird that only the Freemasons survived, right? Mm-hmm. I just can't take it to the next step. I don't understand, like, what that has to do with cannibalism. But maybe... I think, I think yeah, he was saying that basically the, the Mormons were fighting over California and that the Freemasons were fighting over California and the Mexican-American war is going on because the American settlers are fighting over California and that, like, everyone wants California. The gold rush was just, like, made up guys of people being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go get gold in California when really they were trying to, like, establish a new world order there. Oh, okay. All right. Love it. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's a spicy one. Right. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. And maybe we'll have to do a full episode on Freemasons in the future because I feel like there's a lot more there that I just don't know about. And it's time for me to learn. You do that episode. I'm yeah. so sick of learning this shit. You guys, can you tell us in the comments if free, like the whole Freemason thing is problematic or not? Because that's the only reason why I haven't covered it is because I feel like it's a spicy topic for some reason, but I don't even know why it's spicy. So if someone can just give me like a two to five second blurb in a comment and be like, hey, don't do it because actually like it leads to nowhere good or be like, hey, actually, it's fine. And in fact, you should do it. Just don't talk about X, Y and Z. Mm -hmm. 
that would be helpful to me. But thank you very much, Natalia, for uh, teaching me about the Donner Party. It was really fucking sad. It was really tragic. It was very haunted. Um, I keep thinking about that guy that's just like has left a pile of brains simmering uh, over the stove. And then he's just like, I am the only one who survived. (laughs) Kesselberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What a wild, wild man. It was really hard for me to research this because uh, so much of it is, is about like abandoning your children or like watching your kids suffer and die. And I just know that would be so hard as a parent to do that. But I like really tried to make peace with it. Some people that are in my life think that I'm too haunted. And so like as like sort of a passive aggressive birthday gift, they gave me like a session to get like my energy cleared with what? like with like a, um a, like a medium or whatever. But it backfired against them because I told the medium about the podcast and they were like, oh my God, you're doing like that's how you're clearing She's like, you're releasing all of the negative energy that's like in every story that you tell. And you're like allowing these souls to rest by telling their stories and like honoring them. And that like you're clearing that space now. And what did the person say when you told them that? The one that got the person that got you this they were just they were like, oh, oh, that's so great. (laughs) But you could tell they were pissed. Yeah, they they were related to the person that wouldn't come on the podcast and tell the UFO story because oh, they thought that we okay. were like too haunted. Well, interesting. Yeah, but my point is, is being is that like it's really hard for us to talk about stuff like this. But at the same time, like if we just ignore it and we don't talk about it, like we kind of do a disservice to all of these people who died. Like it's like, oh, you know, if we were to take it in like modern terms or whatever, say you have someone that you know that's like really ill and suffering mm-hmm. and it's just too too hard for you to see them because they're ill and they're suffering so you like just don't go see them anymore yeah it's fucked up yeah and and you don't talk about them and they're sort of like erased from your life just because it's too hard for you to suffer with them you know mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't exactly the same but that's the story i tell myself because i have to tell the story anyways yeah no there was an article i saw recently on reddit that was like when women get cancer their partners leave them like 70 percent of the time and then when like these and it's it's almost always if the partner is a man right so they would would interview these partners to do like a psychological research and be like why did you leave them and it was always like oh it was just too hard on me to like watch them like suffer and it's like no what shit. are you talking about like what are that shit blows my mind yeah. like yeah we have to you can't just like leave or because the going gets tough or you can't just like ignore a story because it's uncomfortable right Right. like well I think that's what happens over time is like we are so far removed from survival instincts because of the way society is now that it's hard for us to just hear about death in general yeah of course yeah super hard yeah but that doesn't mean that it's like not allowed to be talked about exactly yeah yeah and so like these kids would just hear of like oh you know dad accidentally like shot his arm off and now he's dying and they would mourn the death of their father but at the same time it's like that's part of life like they are the indifferent stars above and that like we can learn something from that like the sensitivity of us being like no I don't want to see pictures of you know war-torn countries because it's too hard I don't want to take in these things that hurt me look I get it I fucking don't watch the news because it's horrible right now but at the same time it's like that shit is happening you know like just because we're sensitive to it like doesn't mean that it's not happening very well said Well, Natalia, this has fucked me up. Um, 
And I just have one question for you. Yeah. Would you allow others to eat your meat after you die to well, sustain themselves? I don't think I'd have a choice, right? Like, I'm dead. Unless my ghost comes back and I'm just, like, keeping watch over my body like a weird demon entity that's like, don't eat my bones. Like, yeah. I, like, uh, I had, like, weird thoughts where I was like, you know, when they, like, cut these people open and stuff, do they, like, see their intestines and their, like, poop and stuff in there? <laughs> that's what you would be worried about? I don't, I, I do not eat shrimp because you can see their like poop thing uh-huh and it's gross to me yeah and i was thinking that's well, like the, like would you see that i mean if you ate their intestines but if you ate just like someone's thigh then no right right but like would their thigh be like hairy on the outside like yeah. the skin mm-hmm. yeah but not the inside because like you eat you've eaten cow before right and it's not hairy that's true and like fish sushi See, like, I am so far removed from the butchering process that I don't really even know what it is that I am eating. Well, maybe that's for the best. (laughs) I don't even know what to do for a sign-off. BRB, gotta go fight a war with Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Bye. Bye.